Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Prelude of Middlemarch. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Margaret Espayat. Middlemarch by George Eliot. Prelude. Who that cares much to know the history of man, and how the mysterious mixture behaves under the varying experiments of time, has not dwelt at least briefly on the life of St. Teresa, has not smiled with some gentleness at the thought of the little girl walking forth one morning hand in hand with her still smaller brother, to go and seek martyrdom in the country of the Moors? Out they toddled from rugged Avila, wide-eyed and helpless-looking as two fawns, but with human hearts already beating to a national idea until domestic reality met them in the shape of uncles, and turned them back from their great resolve. That child pilgrimage was a fit beginning. Teresa's passionate, ideal nature demanded an epic life. What were many-volumed romances of chivalry and the social conquests of a brilliant girl to her? Her flame quickly burned up in that light fuel, and, fed from within— soared after some illimitable satisfaction, some object which would never justify weariness, which would reconcile self-despair with the rapturous consciousness of life beyond self. She found her epos in the reform of a religious order. That Spanish woman who lived three hundred years ago was certainly not the last of her kind. Many Teresas have been born who found for themselves no epic life wherein there was a constant unfolding of far-resonant action. Perhaps only a life of mistakes, the offspring of a certain spiritual grandeur ill-matched with the meanness of opportunity. Perhaps a tragic failure which found no sacred poet and sank unwept into oblivion. With dim lights and tangled circumstance, they tried to shape their thought and deed in noble agreement, but after all, to common eyes, their struggles seemed mere inconsistency and formlessness, for these later-born Teresas were helped by no coherent social faith and order which could perform the function of knowledge for the ardently willing soul. Their ardor alternated between a vague ideal and the common yearning of womanhood, so that the one was disapproved as extravagance and the other condemned as a lapse. Some have felt that these blundering lives are due to the inconvenient indefiniteness with which the supreme power has fashioned the natures of women. If there were one level of feminine incompetence as strict as the ability to count three and no more, the social lot of women might be treated with scientific certitude. Meanwhile, the indefiniteness remains, and the limits of variation are really much wider than any one would imagine from the sameness 
of women's coiffure and the favorite love stories in prose and verse here and there a signet is reared uneasily among the ducklings in the brown pond and never finds the living stream in fellowship with its own ori-footed kind here and there is born a saint teresa foundress of nothing whose loving heart beats and sobs after an unattained goodness tremble off and are dispersed among hindrances instead of centering in some long recognizable deed book one miss brooke chapter one since i can do no good because a woman reach constantly at something that is near it the maid's tragedy beaumont and fletcher miss brooke had that kind of beauty which seems to be thrown into relief by poor dress her hand and wrist were so finely formed that she could wear sleeves not less bare of style than those in which the blessed virgin appeared to italian painters and her profile as well as her stature and bearing seemed to gain the more dignity from her plain garments which by the side of provincial fashion gave her the impressiveness of a fine quotation from the bible or from one of our elder poets in a paragraph of to-day's newspaper she was usually spoken of as being remarkably clever but with the addition that her sister celia had more common sense nevertheless celia wore scarcely more trimmings and it was only to close observers that her dress differed from her sister's and had a shade of coquetry in its arrangements for miss brooke's plain dressing was due to mixed conditions in most of which her sister shared the pride of being ladies had something to do with it the brooke connections though not exactly aristocratic were unquestionably good if you inquired backward for a generation or two you would not find any yard measuring or parcel tying forefathers anything lower than an admiral or a clergyman and there was even an ancestor discernible as a puritan gentleman who served under cromwell but afterwards conformed and managed to come out of all political troubles as the proprietor of a respectable family estate young women of such birth living in a quiet country house and attending a village church hardly larger than a parlor naturally regarded frippery as the ambition of a huckster's daughter then there was well-bred economy which in those days made show in dress the first item to be deducted from when any margin was required for expenses more distinctive of rank such reasons would have been enough to account for plain dress quite apart from religious feeling but in miss brooke's case religion alone would have determined it and celia mildly acquiesced in all her sister's sentiments only infusing them with that common sense which is able to accept momentous doctrines without any eccentric agitation dorothea knew many passages of pascal's pensees and of jeremy taylor by heart and to her the destinies of mankind seen by the light of christianity made the solicitudes of feminine fashion appear an occupation for bedlam she could not reconcile the anxieties of a spiritual life involving eternal consequences with a keen interest in gimp and artificial protrusions of drapery 
her mind was theoretic, and yearned by its nature after some lofty conception of the world which might frankly include the parish of Tipton and her own rule of conduct there. She was enamored of intensity and greatness, and rash in embracing whatever seemed to her to have those aspects, likely to seek martyrdom, to make retractations, and then to incur martyrdom after all in a quarter where she had not sought it. Certainly such elements in the character of a marriageable girl tended to interfere with her lot, and hinder it from being decided according to custom, by good looks, vanity, and merely canine affection. With all this, she, the elder of the sisters, was not yet twenty, and they had both been educated, since they were about twelve years old and had lost their parents, on plans at once narrow and promiscuous, first in an English family, and afterwards in a Swiss family at Lausanne, their bachelor uncle and guardian, trying in this way to remedy the disadvantages of their orphaned condition. It was hardly a year since they had come to live at Tipton Grange with their uncle, a man nearly sixty, of acquiescent temper, miscellaneous opinions, and uncertain vote. He had travelled in his younger years, and was held in this part of the country to have contracted a too rambling habit of mind. Mr. Brooke's conclusions were as difficult to predict as the weather. It was only safe to say that he would act with benevolent intentions, that he would spend as little money as possible in carrying them out. For the most glutinously indefinite minds enclose some hard grains of habit, and a man has been seen lax about all his own interests except the retention of his snuff-box, concerning which he was watchful, suspicious, and greedy of clutch. In Mr. Brooke, the hereditary strain of Puritan energy was clearly in abeyance, but in his niece Dorothea it glowed alike through faults and virtues, turning sometimes into impatience of her uncle's talk, or his way of letting things be on his estate, and making her long all the more for the time when she would be of age and have some command of money for generous schemes. She was regarded as an heiress, for not only had the sisters seven hundred a year each from their parents, but if Dorothea married and had a son, that son would inherit Mr. Brooke's estate, presumably worth about three thousand a year, a rental which seemed wealth to provincial families, still discussing Mr. Peel's late conduct on the Catholic question, innocent of future goldfields, and of that gorgeous plutocracy which has so nobly exalted the necessities of genteel life. And how should Dorothea not marry? A girl so handsome and with such prospects? Nothing could hinder it but her love of extremes, and her insistence on regulating life according to notions which might cause a wary man to hesitate before he made her an offer, or might even lead her at last to refuse all offers. A young lady of some birth and fortune, who knelt suddenly down on a brick floor by the side of a sick laborer, and prayed fervidly as if she thought herself living in the time of the apostles, who had strange whims of fasting like a papist, and of sitting up at night to read old theological books. Such a wife might awaken you some fine morning with a new scheme for the application of her income, which would interfere with political economy, 
and the keeping of saddle-horses. A man would naturally think twice before he risked himself in such fellowship. Women were expected to have weak opinions. But the great safeguard of society and of domestic life was that opinions were not acted on. Sane people did what their neighbors did, so that if any lunatics were at large, one might know and avoid them. The rural opinion about the new young ladies, even among the cottagers, was generally in favor of Celia, as being so amiable and innocent-looking, while Miss Brooke's large eyes seemed, like her religion, too unusual and striking. Poor Dorothea! Compared with her, the innocent-looking Celia was knowing and worldly-wise. So much subtler is a human mind than the outside tissues which make a sort of blazonry or clock-face for it. Yet those who approached Dorothea, though prejudiced against her by this alarming hearsay, found that she had a charm unaccountably reconcilable with it. Most men thought her bewitching when she was on horseback. She loved the fresh air and the various aspects of the country, and when her eyes and cheeks glowed with mingled pleasure she looked very little like a devotee. Riding was an indulgence which she allowed herself in spite of conscientious qualms. She felt that she enjoyed it in a pagan, sensuous way, and always looked forward to renouncing it. She was open, ardent, and not in the least self-admiring. Indeed, it was pretty to see how her imagination adorned her sister Celia with attractions altogether superior to her own, and if any gentleman appeared to come to the Grange from some other motive than that of seeing Mr. Brooke, she concluded that he must be in love with Celia. Sir James Chetham, for example, whom she constantly considered from Celia's point of view, inwardly debating whether it would be good for Celia to accept him. That he should be regarded as a suitor to herself would have seemed to her a ridiculous irrelevance. Dorothea, with all her eagerness to know the truths of life, retained very childlike ideas about marriage. She felt sure that she would have accepted the judicious hooker if she had been born in time to save him from that wretched mistake he had made in matrimony, or John Milton when his blindness had come on or any of the other great men whose odd habits it would have been glorious piety to endure. But an amiable handsome baronet, who said exactly to her remarks even when she expressed uncertainty, how could he affect her as a lover? The really delightful marriage must be that where your husband was a sort of father, and could teach you even Hebrew if you wished it. These peculiarities of Dorothea's character caused Mr. Brooke to be all the more blamed in neighboring families for not securing some middle-aged lady as a guide and companion to his nieces. But he himself dreaded so much the sort of superior woman likely to be available for such position that he allowed himself to be dissuaded by Dorothea's objections, and was in this case brave enough to defy the world, that is to say, Mrs. Cadwallader, the rector's wife, and the small group of gentry with whom he visited in the northeast corner of Loamshire. So Miss Brooke presided in her uncle's household, and did not at all dislike her new authority, with the homage that belonged to it. Sir James Chetham was going to dine at the Grange to-day with another gentleman whom the girls had never seen, 
and about whom Dorothea felt some venerating expectation. This was the Reverend Edward Casabon, noted in the county as a man of profound learning, understood for many years to be engaged on a great work concerning religious history, also as a man of wealth enough to give lustre to his piety, and having views of his own which were to be more clearly ascertained on the publication of his book. His very name carried an impressiveness hardly to be measured without a precise chronology of scholarship. Early in the day Dorothea had returned from the infant school which she had set going in the village, and was taking her usual place in the pretty sitting-room which divided the bedrooms of the sisters, bent on finishing a plan for some buildings, a kind of work which she delighted in, when Celia, who had been watching her with a hesitating desire to propose something, said, "'Dorothea, dear, if you don't mind, if you are not very busy, suppose we looked at Mamma's jewels to-day and divided them. It is exactly six months to-day since Uncle gave them to you, and you haven't looked at them yet.' Celia's face had the shadow of a pouting expression in it, the full presence of the pout being kept back by a habitual awe of Dorothea and Principal, two associated facts which might show a mysterious electricity if you touched them incautiously. To her relief, Dorothea's eyes were full of laughter as she looked up. "'What a wonderful little almanac you are, Celia! Is it six calendar or six lunar months?' It is the last day of September now, and it was the first of April when Uncle gave them to you. You know he said that he had forgotten them till then. I believe you have never thought of them since you locked them up in the cabinet here. Well, dear, we should never wear them, you know. Dorothea spoke in a full cordial tone, half caressing, half explanatory. She had her pencil in her hand, and was making tiny side plans on a margin. Celia colored and looked very grave. "'I think, dear, we are wanting in respect to Mamma's memory to put them by and take no notice of them. And,' she added, after hesitating little, with a rising sob of mortification, "'necklaces are quite usual now. And Madame Poinçon, who was stricter in some things even than you are, used to wear ornaments. And Christians generally—' Surely there are women in heaven now who wore jewels. Celia was conscious of some mental strength when she really applied herself to argument. "'You would like to wear them?' exclaimed Dorothea, an air of astonished discovery animating her whole person with a dramatic action which she had caught from that very Madame Poinçon who wore the ornaments. "'Of course, then, let us have them out. Why did you not tell me before?' "'But the keys, the keys!' She pressed her hands against the side of her head, and seemed to despair of her memory. "'They are here,' said Celia, with whom this explanation had been long meditated and prearranged. "'Pray open the large drawer of the cabinet and get out the jewel-box.' The casket was soon opened before them, and the various jewels spread out, making a bright parterre on the table. It was no great collection, but a few of the ornaments were really of remarkable beauty, the finest that was obvious at first being a necklace of purple amethysts set in exquisite gold work, and a pearl cross with five brilliants in it. Dorothea immediately took up the necklace and fastened it round her sister's neck, 
where it fitted almost as closely as a bracelet, but the circle suited the Henrietta Maria style of Celia's head and neck, and she could see that it did in the pier-glass opposite. "'There, Celia, you can wear that with your Indian muslin, but this cross you must wear with your dark dresses.' Celia was trying not to smile with pleasure. "'Oh, Dodo, you must keep the cross yourself.' "'No, no, dear, no,' said Dorothea, putting up her hand with careless deprecation. "'Yes, indeed, you must. It would suit you. In your black dress, now,' said Celia, insistingly. "'You might wear that.' "'Not for the world. Not for the world. A cross is the last thing I would wear as a trinket,' Dorothea shuddered lightly. "'Then you will think it wicked in me to wear it,' said Celia, uneasily. "'No, dear, no,' said Dorothea, stroking her sister's cheek. "'Souls have complexions, too. What will suit one will not suit another.' "'But you might like to keep it for mamma's sake.' "'No, I have other things of mamma's. Her sandalwood box, which I am so fond of. Plenty of things. In fact, they are all yours, dear. We need discuss them no longer. There, take away your property.' Celia felt a little hurt. There was a strong assumption of superiority in this puritanic toleration, hardly less trying to the blonde flesh of an unenthusiastic sister than a puritanic persecution. But how can I wear ornaments if you, who are the elder sister, will never wear them? Nay, Celia, that is too much to ask, that I should wear trinkets to keep you in countenance. If I were to put on such a necklace as that, I should feel as if I had been pirouetting. The whole world would go round with me, and I should not know how to walk. Celia had unclasped the necklace and drawn it off. It would be a little tight for your neck. Something to lie down and hang would suit you better, she said, with some satisfaction. The complete unfitness of the necklace from all points of view for Dorothea made Celia happier in taking it. She was opening some ring-boxes, which disclosed a fine emerald with diamonds, and just then the sun passing beyond a cloud sent a bright gleam over the table. "'How very beautiful these gems are,' said Dorothea, under a new current of feeling, as sudden as the gleam. "'It is strange how deeply colors seem to penetrate one, like scent.' I suppose that is the reason why gems are used as spiritual emblems in the revelation of St. John. They look like fragments of heaven. I think that emerald is more beautiful than any of them. "'And there's a bracelet to match it,' said Celia. "'We did not notice this at first. "'They are lovely,' said Dorothea, slipping the ring and bracelet on her finely turned finger and wrist, and holding them towards the window on a level with her eyes. All the while her thought was trying to justify her delight in the colors by merging them in her mystic religious joy. "'You would like those, Dorothea,' said Celia, rather falteringly, beginning to think with wonder that her sister showed some weakness, and also that emeralds would suit her own complexion even better than purple amethysts. "'You must keep that ring and bracelet, if nothing else.' But see, these agates are very pretty and quiet. Yes, I will keep these, this ring and bracelet, said Dorothea. Then, letting her hand fall on the table, she said in another tone, Yet, 
what miserable men find such things and work at them and sell them she paused again and celia thought that her sister was going to renounce the ornaments as in consistency she ought to do yes dear i will keep these said dorothea decidedly but take all the rest away and the casket she took up her pencil without removing the jewels and still looking at them she thought of often having them by her to feed her eye at these little fountains of pure color shall you wear them in company said celia who was watching her with real curiosity as to what she would do dorothea glanced quickly at her sister across all her imaginative adornment of those whom she loved there darted now and then a keen discernment which was not without a scorching quality if miss brooke ever attained perfect meekness it would not be for lack of inward fire perhaps she said rather haughtily i cannot tell to what level i may sink celia blushed and was unhappy she saw that she had offended her sister and dared not say even anything pretty about the gift of the ornaments which she had put back into the box and carried away dorothea too was unhappy as she went on with her plan drawing questioning the purity of her own feeling and speech in the scene which had ended with that little explosion celia's consciousness told her that she had not been at all in the wrong it was quite natural and justifiable that she should have asked that question and she repeated to herself that dorothea was inconsistent either she should have taken her full share of the jewels or after what she had said she should have renounced them altogether i am sure at least i trust thought celia that the wearing of a necklace will not interfere with my prayers and i do not see that i should be bound by dorothea's opinions now that we are going into society though of course she herself ought to be bound by them but dorothea is not always consistent thus celia mutely bending over her tapestry until she heard her sister calling her here kitty come and look at my plan i shall think i am a great architect if i have not got incompatible stairs and fireplaces as celia bent over the paper dorothea put her cheek against her sister's arm caressingly celia understood the action dorothea saw that she had been in the wrong and celia pardoned her since they could remember there had been a mixture of criticism and awe in the attitude of celia's mind towards her elder sister the younger had always worn a yoke but is there any yoked creature without its private opinions end of chapter one chapter two of middlemarch this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Margaret Espayat. Middlemarch by George Eliot. Chapter 2. Dime, ¿no ves aquel caballero que hacia nosotros viene sobre un caballo rucio rodado que trae puesto en la cabeza un yermo de oro? lo que veo y columbro respondió sancho no es sino un hombre sobre un asno pardo como el mío que trae sobre la cabeza una cosa que relumbra pues ese es el yelmo de mambrino dijo don quijote cervantes 
seest thou not yon cavalier who cometh toward us on a dapple-gray steed and weareth a golden helmet what i see answered sancho is nothing but a man on a gray ass like my own who carries something shiny on his head just so answered don quixote and that resplendent object is the helmet of mambrino sir humphrey davy said mr brooke over the soup in his easy smiling way taking up sir james chettam's remark that he was studying davy's agricultural chemistry well now sir humphrey davy i dined with him years ago at cartwright's and wordsworth was there too the poet wordsworth you know now there was something singular i was at cambridge when wordsworth was there and i never met him and i dined with him twenty years afterwards at cartwright's there's an oddity in things now but davy was there he was a poet too or as i may say wordsworth was poet one and davy was poet two that was true in every sense you know dorothea felt a little more uneasy than usual in the beginning of dinner the party being small and the room still these motes from the mass of a magistrate's mind fell too noticeably she wondered how a man like mr casaubon would support such triviality his manners she thought were very dignified the set of his iron-gray hair and his deep eye-sockets made him resemble the portrait of locke he had the spare form and the pale complexion which became a student as different as possible from the blooming englishman of the red-whiskered type represented by sir james chettam i am reading the agricultural chemistry said this excellent baronet because i am going to take one of the farms into my own hands and see if something cannot be done in setting a good pattern of farming among my tenants do you approve of that miss brooke a great mistake chettam interposed mr brooke going into electrifying your land and that kind of thing and making a parlor of your cow-house it won't do i went into science a great deal myself at one time but i saw it would not do it leads to everything you can let nothing alone no no see that your tenants don't sell their straw and that kind of thing and give them draining tiles you know but your fancy farming will not do the most expensive sort of whistle you can buy you may as well keep a pack of hounds surely said dorothea it is better to spend money in finding out how men can make the most of the land which supports them all than in keeping dogs and horses only to gallop over it it is not a sin to make yourself poor in performing experiments for the good of all she spoke with more energy than is expected of so young a lady but sir james had appealed to her he was accustomed to do so and she had often thought that she could urge him to many good actions when he was her brother-in-law mr casaubon turned his eyes very markedly on dorothea while she was speaking and seemed to observe her newly young ladies don't understand political economy you know said mr brooke smiling towards mr casaubon i remember when we were all reading adam smith there is a book now i took in all the new ideas at one time human perfectibility now but 
Some say, history moves in circles, and that may be very well argued. I have argued it myself. The fact is, human reason may carry you a little too far. Over the hedge, in fact. It carried me a good way at one time. But I saw it would not do. I pulled up. I pulled up in time. But not too hard. I have always been in favor of a little theory. We must have thought, else we shall be landed back in the dark ages. But, talking of books, there's Southey's Peninsular War. I'm reading that of a morning. You know Southey? No, said Mr. Casaubon, not keeping pace with Mr. Brooke's impetuous reason, and thinking of the book only. I have little leisure for such literature just now. I have been using up my eyesight on old characters lately. The fact is, I want a reader for my evenings, but I am fastidious in voices. I cannot endure listening to an imperfect reader. It is a misfortune in some senses. I feed too much on the inward sources. I live too much with the dead. My mind is something like the ghost of an ancient, wandering about the world and trying mentally to construct it as it used to be, in spite of ruin and confusing changes. But I find it necessary to use the utmost caution about my eyesight. This was the first time that Mr. Casaubon had spoken at any length. He delivered himself with precision, as if he had been called upon to make a public statement, and the balanced sing-song neatness of his speech, occasionally corresponded to by a movement of his head, was the more conspicuous from its contrast with good Mr. Brooks' scrappy slovenliness. Dorothea said to herself that Mr. Casaubon was the most interesting man she had ever seen, not excepting even Monsieur Liret, the vaudois clergyman who had given conferences on the history of the Waldenses. To reconstruct a past world, doubtless with a view to the highest purposes of truth, what a work to be in any way present at, to assist in, though only as a lampholder. This elevating thought lifted her above her annoyance at being twitted with her ignorance of political economy, that never-explained science which was thrust as an extinguisher over all her lights. "'But you are fond of writing, Miss Brooke,' Sir James presently took an opportunity of saying. "'I should have thought that you would enter a little into the pleasures of hunting. I wish you would let me send over a chestnut horse for you to try. It has been trained for a lady.' I saw you on Saturday, cantering over a hill on a nag not worthy of you. My groom shall bring Corydon for you every day, if you will only mention the time. Thank you. You are very good. I mean to give up riding. I shall not ride any more, said Dorothea, urged to this brusque resolution by a little annoyance that Sir James would be soliciting her attention when she wanted to give it all to Mr. Casaubon. "'No, that is too hard,' said Sir James, in a tone of reproach that showed strong interest. "'Your sister is given to self-mortification, is she not?' he continued, turning to Celia, who sat at his right hand. "'I think she is,' said Celia, feeling afraid lest she should say something that would not please her sister, and blushing as prettily as possible above her necklace. "'She likes giving up.' 
If that were true, Celia, my giving up would be self-indulgence, not self-mortification. But there may be good reasons for choosing not to do what is very agreeable, said Dorothea. Mr. Brooke was speaking at the same time, but it was evident that Mr. Casaubon was observing Dorothea, and she was aware of it. Exactly, said Sir James. You give up from some high, generous motive. No, indeed, not exactly. I did not say that of myself, answered Dorothea, reddening. Unlike Celia, she rarely blushed, and only from high delight or anger. At this moment she felt angry with the perverse Sir James. Why did he not pay attention to Celia, and leave her to listen to Mr. Casaubon? If that learned man would only talk, instead of allowing himself to be talked to by Mr. Brooke, who was just then informing him that the Reformation either meant something or it did not, that he himself was a Protestant to the core, but that Catholicism was a fact, and as to refusing an acre of your ground for a Romanist chapel, all men needed the bridle of religion, which, properly speaking, was the dread of a hereafter. "'I made a great study of theology at one time,' said Mr. Brooke, as if to explain the insight just manifested. "'I know something of all schools. I knew Wilberforce in his best days. Do you know Wilberforce?' Mr. Cos Mr. Casaubon said, "'No. Well, Wilberforce was perhaps not enough of a thinker, but if I went into Parliament, as I have been asked to do, I should sit on the independent bench.' as Wilberforce did, and work at philanthropy. Mr. Casaubon bowed, and observed that it was a wide field. "'Yes,' said Mr. Brooke, with an easy smile, "'but I have documents. I began a long while ago to collect documents. They want arranging, but when a question has struck me, I have written to somebody and got an answer. I have documents at my back. But now—' How do you arrange your documents? In pigeonholes, partly, said Mr. Casaubon, with rather a startled air of effort. Ah, pigeonholes will not do. I have tried pigeonholes, but everything gets mixed in pigeonholes. I never know whether a paper is an A or Z. I wish you would let me sort your papers for you, uncle, said Dorothea. I would letter them all, and then make a list of subjects under each letter. Mr. Casaubon gravely smiled approval, and said to Mr. Brooke, "'You have an excellent secretary at hand, you perceive.' "'No, no,' said Mr. Brooke, shaking his head. "'I cannot let young ladies meddle with my documents. Young ladies are too flighty.' Dorothea felt hurt. Mr. Casaubon would think that her uncle had some special reason for delivering this opinion, whereas the remark lay in his mind as lightly as the broken wing of an insect among all the other fragments there, and a chance current had sent it alighting on her. When the two girls were in the drawing-room alone, Celia said, "'How very ugly Mr. Casaubon is!' "'Celia! He is one of the most distinguished-looking men I ever saw. He is remarkably like the portrait of Locke. He has the same deep eye-sockets.' Had Locke those two white moles with hairs on them? Oh, I dare say, when people of a certain sort looked at him, said Dorothea, walking away a little. 
Mr. Casaubon is so sallow. All the better. I suppose you admire a man with the complexion of a cochon de lait. Dodo! exclaimed Celia, looking after her in surprise. I never heard you make such a comparison before. Why should I make it before the occasion came? It is a good comparison. The match is perfect. Miss Brooke was clearly forgetting herself, and Celia thought so. I wonder you show temper, Dorothea. It is so painful in you, Celia, that you will look at human beings as if they were merely animals with a toilet, and never see the great soul in a man's face. Has Mr. Casaubon a great soul? Celia was not without a touch of naive malice. Yes, I believe he has, said Dorothea, with the full voice of decision. Everything I see in him corresponds to his pamphlet on biblical cosmology. He talks very little, said Celia. There is no one for him to talk to. Celia thought privately, Dorothea quite despises Sir James Chetham. I believe she would not accept him. Celia felt that this was a pity. She had never been deceived as to the object of the baronet's interest. Sometimes, indeed, she had reflected that Dodo would perhaps not make a husband happy, who had not her way of looking at things, and, stifled in the depths of her heart, was the feeling that her sister was too religious for family comfort. Notions and scruples were like spilt needles, making one afraid of treading, or sitting down, or even eating. When Miss Brooke was at the tea-table, Sir James came to sit down by her, not having felt her mode of answering him at all offensive. Why should he? He thought it probable that Miss Brooke liked him, and manners must be very marked indeed before they ceased to be interpreted by preconceptions either confident or distrustful. She was thoroughly charming to him, but of course he theorized a little about his attachment. He was made of excellent human dough, and he had the rare merit of knowing that his talents, even if let loose, would not set the smallest stream in the county on fire. Hence he liked the prospect of a wife to whom he could say, What shall we do about this or that? Who could help her husband out with reasons, and would also have the property qualification for doing so? As to the excessive religiousness alleged against Miss Brooke, he had a very indefinite notion of what it consisted in, and thought it would die out with marriage. In short, he felt himself to be in love in the right place, and was ready to endure a great deal of predominance, which, after all, a man could always put down when he liked. Sir James had no idea that he should ever like to put down the predominance of this handsome girl, in whose cleverness he delighted. Why not? A man's mind, what there is of it, has always the advantage of being masculine, as the smallest birch-tree is of a higher kind than the most soaring palm, and even his ignorance is of a sounder quality. Sir James might not have originated this estimate, but a kind providence furnishes the limpest personality with a little gunk or starch in the form of tradition. "'Let me hope that you will rescind that resolution about the horse, Miss Brooke,' said the persevering admirer. "'I assure you, riding is the most healthy of exercises.' 
"'I am aware of it,' said Dorothea, coldly. "'I think it would do Celia good, if she would take to it.' "'But you are such a perfect horsewoman.' "'Excuse me, I have had very little practice, and I should be easily thrown.' "'Then that is a reason for more practice. Every lady ought to be a perfect horsewoman, that she may accompany her husband.' "'You see how widely we differ, Sir James.' I have made up my mind that I ought not to be a perfect horsewoman, and so I should never correspond to your pattern of a lady. Dorothea looked straight before her, and spoke with a cold brusquerie, very much with the air of a handsome boy, in amusing contrast with the solicitous amiability of her admirer. I should like to know your reasons for this cruel resolution." It is not possible that you should think horsemanship wrong. It is quite possible that I should think it wrong for me. Oh, why, said Sir James, in a tender tone of remonstrance. Mr. Casaubon had come up to the table, teacup in hand, and was listening. We must not inquire too curiously into motives, he interposed, in his measured way. Miss Brooke knows that they are apt to become feeble in the utterance. The aroma is mixed with the grosser air. We must keep the germinating grain away from the light. Dorothea colored with pleasure, and looked up gratefully to the speaker. Here was a man who could understand the higher inward life, and with whom there could be some spiritual communion, nay, who could illuminate principle with the widest knowledge a man whose learning almost amounted to a proof of whatever he believed. Dorothea's inferences may seem large, but really life could never have gone on at any period but for this liberal allowance of conclusions, which has facilitated marriage under the difficulties of civilization. Has any one ever pinched into its pilulous smallness the cobweb of pre-matrimonial acquaintanceship? Certainly, said good Sir James, Miss Brooke shall not be urged to tell reasons she would rather be silent upon. I am sure her reasons would do her honor. He was not in the least jealous of the interest with which Dorothy had looked up at Mr. Casaubon. It never occurred to him that the girl to whom he was meditating an offer of marriage could care for a dried bookworm towards fifty, except, indeed, in a religious sort of way as for a clergyman of some distinction. However, since Miss Brooke had become engaged in a conversation with Mr. Casaubon about the Vaudois clergy, Sir James betook himself to Celia, and talked to her about her sister, spoke of a house in town, and asked whether Miss Brooke disliked London. Away from her sister, Celia talked quite easily, and Sir James said to himself that the second Miss Brooke was certainly very agreeable as well as pretty, though not, as some people pretended, more clever and sensible than the elder sister. He felt that he had chosen the one who was in all respects the superior, and a man naturally likes to look forward to having the best. He would be the very maw-worm of bachelors who pretended not to expect it. End of chapter 2 Chapter Three of Middlemarch. This is a LibriVox recording. 
All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Margaret S. Bayat. Middlemarch by George Eliot. Chapter 3. Say, goddess, what ensued when Raphael, the affable archangel, Eve, the story heard attentive, and was filled with admiration and deep muse to hear of things so high and strange. Paradise Lost If it had really occurred to Mr. Casaubon to think of Miss Brooke as a suitable wife for him, the reasons that might induce her to accept him were already planted in her mind, and by the evening of the next day the reasons had budded and bloomed, for they had had a long conversation in the morning, while Celia, who did not like the company of Mr. Casaubon's moles and sallowness, had escaped to the vicarage to play with the curate's ill-shod but merry children. Dorothea by this time had looked deep into the ungaged reservoir of Mr. Casaubon's mind, seeing reflected there, in vague labyrinthine extension, every quality she herself brought, had opened much of her own experience to him, and had understood from him the scope of his great work, also of attractively labyrinthine extent. For he had been as instructive as Milton's affable archangel, and with something of the archangelic manner he told her how he had undertaken to show, what indeed had been attempted before, but not with that thoroughness, justice of comparison, and effectiveness of arrangement, at which Mr. Casaubon aimed, that all the mythical systems or erratic mythical fragments in the world were corruptions of a tradition originally revealed. Having once mastered the true position and taken a firm footing there, the vast field of mythical constructions became intelligible, nay, luminous, with the reflected light of correspondences. But to gather in this great harvest of truth was no light or speedy work. His notes already made a formidable range of volumes, but the crowning task would be to condense these voluminous still-accumulating results and bring them, like the earlier vintage of Hippocratic books, to fit a little shelf. In explaining this to Dorothea, Mr. Casaubon expressed himself nearly as he would have done to a fellow-student, for he had not two styles of talking at command. It is true that when he used a Greek or Latin phrase he always gave the English with scrupulous care, but he would probably have done this in any case. A learned provincial clergyman is accustomed to think of his acquaintances as of lords, knights, and other noble and worthy men, that con Latin but little. Dorothea was altogether captivated by the wide embrace of this conception. Here was something beyond the shallows of ladies' school literature. Here was a living Bossuet, whose work would reconcile complete knowledge with devoted piety. Here was a modern Augustine, who united the glories of doctor and saint. The sanctity seemed no less clearly marked than the learning, for when Dorothea was impelled to open her mind on certain themes which she could speak of to no one whom she had before seen at Tipton, especially on the secondary importance of ecclesiastical forms 
and articles of belief compared with that of spiritual religion, that submergence of self in communion with divine perfection which seemed to her to be expressed in the best Christian books of widely distant ages, she found in Mr. Casaubon a listener who understood her at once, who could assure her of his own agreement with that view when duly tempered with wise conformity, and could mention historical examples before unknown to her. "'He thinks of me,' said Dorothea to herself, "'or, rather, he thinks a whole world of which my thought is but a poor two-penny mirror. And his feelings, too, his whole experience, what a lake compared with my little pool!' Miss Brooke argued from words and dispositions not less unhesitatingly than other young ladies of her age. Signs are small measurable things, but interpretations are illimitable, and in girls of sweet, ardent nature every sign is apt to conjure up wonder, hope, belief, vast as a sky, and colored by a diffused thimbleful of matter in the shape of knowledge. They are not always too grossly deceived, for Sinbad himself may have fallen by good luck on a true description, and wrong reasoning sometimes lands poor mortals in right conclusions, starting a long way off the true point, and proceeding by loops and zigzags, we now and then arrive just where we ought to be. Because Miss Brooke was hasty in her trust, it is not therefore clear that Mr. Casaubon was unworthy of it. He stayed a little longer than he had intended, on a slight pressure of invitation from Mr. Brooke, who offered no bait except his own documents on machine-breaking and rick-burning. Mr. Casaubon was called into the library to look at these in a heap, while his host picked up first one and then the other to read aloud from in a skipping and uncertain way, passing from one unfinished passage to another with a yes now but here and finally pushing them all aside to open the journal of his youthful continental travels look here here is all about greece ramnus the ruins of ramnus you are a great grecian now i don't know whether you have given much study to the topography i spent no end of time in making out these things helicon now here now we started the next morning for Parnassus, the double-peaked Parnassus. All this volume is about Greece, you know. Mr. Brooke wound up, rubbing his thumb transversely along the edges of the leaves, as he held the book forward. Mr. Casaubon made a dignified, though somewhat sad, audience, bowed in the right place, and avoided looking at anything documentary as far as possible without showing disregard or impatience, mindful that this desultoriness was associated with the institutions of the country, and that the man who took him on this severe mental scamper was not only an amiable host, but a landholder and custus rotulorum. Was his endurance aided also by the reflection that Mr. Brooke was the uncle of Dorothea? Certainly he seemed more and more bent on making her talk to him, on drawing her out, as Celia remarked to herself, and in looking at her his face was often lit up by a smile like pale wintry sunshine. Before he left the next morning, 
while taking a pleasant walk with Miss Brooke along the graveled terrace, he had mentioned to her that he felt the disadvantage of loneliness, the need of that cheerful companionship with which the presence of youth can lighten or vary the serious toils of maturity. And he delivered this statement with as much careful precision as if he had been a diplomatic envoy whose words would be attended with results. Indeed, Mr. Casaubon was not used to expect that he should have to repeat or revise his communications of a practical or personal kind. The inclinations which he had deliberately stated on the 2nd of October he would think it enough to refer to by the mention of that date, judging by the standard of his own memory, which was a volume where a vide supra would serve instead of repetitions, and not the ordinary long-used blotting-book which only tells of forgotten writing. But in this case Mr. Casaubon's confidence was not likely to be falsified, for Dorothea heard and retained what he said with the eager interest of a fresh young nature to which every variety in experience is an epoch. It was three o'clock in the beautiful breezy autumn day when Mr. Casaubon drove off to his rectory at Lowick, only five miles from Tipton, and Dorothea, who had on her bonnet and shawl, hurried along the shrubbery and across the park that she might wander through the bordering wood with no other visible companionship than that of Monk, the great St. Bernard dog, who always took care of the young ladies in their walks there had risen before her the girl's vision of a possible future for herself to which she looked forward with trembling hope, and she wanted to wander on in that visionary future without interruption. She walked briskly in the brisk air, the color rose in her cheeks, and her straw bonnet, which our contemporaries might look at with conjectural curiosity as at an obsolete form of basket, fell a little backward. She would perhaps be hardly characterized enough if it were omitted that she wore her brown hair flatly braided and coiled behind so as to expose the outline of her head in a daring manner at a time when public feeling required the meagerness of nature to be dissimulated by tall barricades of frizzed curls and bows, never surpassed by any great race except the Fijian. This was a trait of Miss Brooke's asceticism. But there was nothing of an ascetic's expression in her bright full eyes as she looked before her, not consciously seeing, but absorbing into the intensity of her mood, the solemn glory of the afternoon with its long swathes of light between the far-off rows of limes whose shadows touched each other. All people, young or old, that is, all people in those anti-reform times, would have thought her an interesting object if they had referred the glow in her eyes and cheeks to the newly awakened ordinary images of young love. The illusions of Chloe about Strephon have been sufficiently consecrated in poetry, as the pathetic loveliness of all spontaneous trust ought to be. Miss Pippin adoring young Pumpkin, and dreaming along endless vistas of unwearying companionship, was a little drama which never tired our fathers and mothers, and had been put into all costumes. Let but Pumpkin have a figure which would sustain the disadvantages 
of the short-waisted swallow-tail, and everybody felt it not only natural, but necessary to the perfection of womanhood, that a sweet girl should be at once convinced of his virtue, his exceptional ability, and above all, his perfect sincerity. But perhaps no persons then living, certainly none in the neighborhood of Tipton, would have had a sympathetic understanding for the dreams of a girl whose notions about marriage took their color entirely from an exalted enthusiasm about the ends of life, an enthusiasm which was lit chiefly by its own fire, and included neither the niceties of the trousseau, the pattern of plate, nor even the honors and sweet joys of the blooming matron. It had now entered Dorothea's mind that Mr. Casaubon might wish to make her his wife, and the idea that he would do so touched her with a sort of reverential gratitude. How good of him! Nay, it would be almost as if a winged messenger had suddenly stood beside her path and held out his hand towards her. For a long while she had been oppressed by the indefiniteness which hung in her mind, like a thick summer haze, over all her desire to make her life greatly effective. What could she do? What ought she to do? She, hardly more than a budding woman, but yet with an active conscience and a great mental need, not to be satisfied by a girlish instruction comparable to the nibblings and judgments of a discursive mouse. With some endowment of stupidity and conceit, she might have thought that a Christian young lady of fortune should find her ideal of life in village charities, patronage of the humbler clergy, the perusal of female scripture characters, unfolding the private experience of Sarah under the old dispensation and Dorcas under the new, and the care of her soul over her embroidery in her own boudoir, with a background of prospective marriage to a man who, if less strict than herself, as being involved in affairs religiously inexplicable, might be prayed for and seasonably exhorted. From such contentment poor Dorothea was shut out. The intensity of her religious disposition, the coercion it exercised over her life, was but one aspect of a nature altogether ardent, theoretic, and intellectually consequent. But with such a nature struggling in the bands of narrow teaching, hemmed in by a social life which seemed nothing but a labyrinth of petty courses, a walled-in maze of small paths that led nowhither, the outcome was sure to strike others as at once exaggeration and inconsistency. The thing which seemed to her best she wanted to justify by the completest knowledge and not to live in a pretended admission of rules which were never acted on. Into this soul-hunger as yet all her youthful passion was poured. The union which attracted her was one that would deliver her from girlish subjection to her own ignorance, and give her the freedom of voluntary submission to a guide who would take her along the grandest path. I should learn everything, then, she said to herself, still walking quickly along the bridle road through the wood. It would be my duty to study that I might help him the better in his great works. 
there would be nothing trivial about our lives. Everyday things with us would mean the greatest things. It would be like marrying Pascal. I should learn to see the truth by the same light as great men have seen it by. And then I should know what to do when I got older. I should see how it was possible to lead a grand life here, now, in England. I don't feel sure about doing good in any way now. Everything seems like going on a mission to people whose language I don't know, unless it were building good cottages. There can be no doubt about that. Oh, I hope I should be able to get the people well housed in Lowick. I will draw plenty of plans while I have time. Dorothea checked herself suddenly with self-rebuke for the presumptuous way in which she was reckoning on uncertain events, but she was spared any inward effort to change the direction of her thoughts by the appearance of a cantering horseman round a turning of the road. The well-groomed chestnut horse and two beautiful setters could leave no doubt that the rider was Sir James Chetham. He discerned Dorothea, jumped off his horse at once, and having delivered it to his groom, advanced toward her with something white on his arm, at which the two setters were barking in an excited manner. "'How delightful to meet you, Miss Brooke,' he said, raising his hat and showing his sleekly waving blond hair. "'It has hastened the pleasure I was looking forward to.' Miss Brooke was annoyed at the interruption. This amiable baronet, really a suitable husband for Celia, exaggerated the necessity of making himself agreeable to the elder sister. Even a prospective brother-in-law may be an oppression if he will always be presupposing too good an understanding with you, and agreeing with you even when you contradict him. The thought that he had made the mistake of paying his addresses to herself could not take shape. All her mental activity was used up in persuasions of another kind but he was positively obtrusive at this moment, and his dimpled hands were quite disagreeable. Her roused temper made her color deeply as she returned his greeting with some haughtiness. Sir James interpreted the heightened color in the way most gratifying to himself, and thought he never saw Miss Brooke looking so handsome. "'I have brought a little petitioner,' he said, or rather, I have brought him to see if he will be approved before his petition is offered. He showed the white object under his arm, which was a tiny Maltese puppy, one of nature's most naive toys. "'It is painful to me to see these creatures that are bred merely as pets,' said Dorothea, whose opinion was forming itself that very moment, as opinions will, under the heat of irritation. "'Oh, why?' said Sir James, as they walked forward. "'I believe all the petting that is given them does not make them happy. They are too helpless. Their lives are too frail. A weasel or a mouse that gets its own living is more interesting. I like to think that the animals about us have souls something like our own, and either carry on their own little affairs, or can be companions to us like Monk here. Those creatures are parasitic.' I am so glad I know that you do not like them, said good Sir James. I should never keep them for myself, but ladies are usually fond of these Maltese dogs. Here, John, take this dog, will you? The objectionable puppy, whose nose and eyes were equally black and expressive, 
was thus got rid of, since Miss Brooke decided that it had better not have been born. But she felt it necessary to explain. "'You must not judge of Celia's feeling from mine. I think she likes these small pets. She had a tiny terrier once, which she was very fond of. It made me unhappy because I was afraid of treading on it. I'm rather short-sighted.' "'You have your own opinion about everything, Miss Brooke, and it is always a good opinion.' What answer was possible to such stupid complimenting? "'Do you know, I envy you that,' Sir James said, as they continued walking at the rather brisk pace set by Dorothea. "'I don't quite understand what you mean. Your power of forming an opinion. I can form an opinion of persons.' I know when I like people, but about other matters, do you know, I have often a difficulty in deciding. One hears very sensible things said on opposite sides. Or that seem sensible. Perhaps we don't always discriminate between sense and nonsense. Dorothea felt that she was rather rude. Exactly, said Sir James. But you seem to have the power of discrimination. On the contrary— I am often unable to decide, but that is from ignorance. The right conclusion is there all the same, though I am unable to see it. I think there are few who would see it more readily. Do you know, Lovegood was telling me yesterday that you had the best notion in the world of a plan for cottages. Quite wonderful for a young lady, he thought. You had a real genius, to use his expression. He said you wanted Mr. Brooke to build a new set of cottages, but— he seemed to think it hardly probable that your uncle would consent. Do you know, that is one of the things I wish to do. I mean, on my own estate. I should be so glad to carry out that plan of yours, if you would let me see it. Of course it is sinking money. That is why people object to it. Laborers can never pay rent to make it answer. But after all, it is worth doing. Worth doing? Yes, indeed, said Dorothea, energetically forgetting her previous small vexations. I think we deserve to be beaten out of our beautiful houses with a scourge of small cords, all of us who let tenants live in such styes as we see round us. Life in cottages might be happier than ours if they were real houses fit for human beings from whom we expect duties and affections. Will you show me your plan? Yes, certainly. I dare say it is very faulty but I have been examining all the plans for cottages in Loden's book, and picked out what seemed the best things. Oh, what a happiness it would be to set the pattern about here! I think instead of Lazarus at the gate, we should put the pigsty cottages outside the park gate. Dorothea was in the best temper now. Sir James, as brother-in-law, building model cottages on his estate, and then perhaps others being built at Lowick, and more and more elsewhere in imitation, it would be as if the spirit of Oberlin had passed over the parishes to make the life of poverty beautiful. Sir James saw all the plans, and took one away to consult upon with Lovegood. He also took away a complacent sense that he was making great progress in Miss Brooke's good opinion. The Maltese puppy was not offered to Celia an omission which Dorothea afterwards thought of with surprise, but she blamed herself for it. She had been engrossing Sir James. 
After all, it was a relief that there was no puppy to tread upon. Celia was present while the plans were being examined, and observed Sir James's illusion. He thinks that Dodo cares about him, and she only cares about her plans. Yet I am not certain that she would refuse him if she thought he would let her manage everything and carry out all her notions. How very uncomfortable Sir James would be! I cannot bear notions. It was Celia's private luxury to indulge in this dislike. She dared not confess it to her sister in any direct statement, for that would be laying herself open to a demonstration that she was somehow or other at war with all goodness. But on safe opportunities she had an indirect mode of making her negative wisdom tell upon Dorothea, and calling her down from her rhapsodic mood by reminding her that people were staring, not listening. Celia was not impulsive. What she had to say could wait, and came from her always with the same quiet staccato evenness. When people talked with energy and emphasis, she watched their faces and features merely. She could never understand how well-bred persons consented to sing and open their mouths in the ridiculous manner requisite for that vocal exercise. It was not many days before Mr. Casaubon paid a morning visit, on which he was invited again for the following week to dine and stay the night. Thus Dorothea had three more conversations with him, and was convinced that her first impressions had been just. He was all she had at first imagined him to be. Almost everything he had said seemed like a specimen from a mine, or the inscription on the door of a museum which might open on the treasures of past ages, and this trust in his mental wealth was all the deeper and more effective on her inclination, because it was now obvious that his visits were made for her sake. This accomplished man condescended to think of a young girl, and take the pains to talk to her, not with absurd compliment, but with an appeal to her understanding, and sometimes with instructive correction. What delightful companionship! Mr. Casaubon seemed even unconscious that trivialities existed, and never handed round that small talk of heavy men which is as acceptable as stale bride-cake brought forth with an odour of cupboard. He talked of what he was interested in, or else he was silent and bowed with sad civility. To Dorothea this was adorable genuineness, and religious abstinence from that artificiality which uses up the soul in the efforts of pretense. For she looked as reverently at Mr. Casaubon's religious elevation above herself as she did at his intellect and learning. He assented to her expressions of devout feeling, and usually with an appropriate quotation. He allowed himself to say that he had gone through some spiritual conflicts in his youth. In short, Dorothea saw that here she might reckon on understanding, sympathy, and guidance. On one, only one, of her favorite themes she was disappointed. Mr. Casaubon apparently did not care about building cottages, and diverted the talk to the extremely narrow accommodation which was to be had in the dwellings of the ancient Egyptians, as if to check a too high standard. 
After he was gone, Dorothea dwelt with some agitation on this indifference of his, and her mind was much exercised with arguments drawn from the varying conditions of climate which modify human needs, and from the admitted wickedness of pagan despots. Should she not urge these arguments on Mr. Casaubon when he came again? But further reflection told her that she was presumptuous in demanding his attention to such a subject. He would not disapprove of her occupying herself with it in leisure moments, as other women expected to occupy themselves with their dress and embroidery, would not forbid it when, Dorothea felt rather ashamed, as she detected herself in these speculations. But her uncle had been invited to go to Lowick to stay a couple of days. Was it reasonable to suppose that Mr. Casaubon delighted in Mr. Brooks' society for its own sake, either with or without documents? Meanwhile, that little disappointment made her delight the more in Sir James Chetham's readiness to set on foot the desired improvements. He came much oftener than Mr. Casaubon, and Dorothea ceased to find him disagreeable since he showed himself so entirely in earnest for he had already entered with much practical ability into Lovegood's estimates, and was charmingly docile. She proposed to build a couple of cottages, and transfer two families from their old cabins, which could then be pulled down, so that new ones could be built on the old sites. Sir James said, exactly, and she bore the word remarkably well. Certainly these men, who had so few spontaneous ideas, might be very useful members of society under good feminine direction, if they were fortunate in choosing their sisters-in-law. It is difficult to say whether there was or was not a little willfulness in her continuing blind to the possibility that another sort of choice was in question in relation to her. But her life was just now full of hope and action. She was not only thinking of her plans, but getting down learned books from the library, and reading many things hastily, that she might be a little less ignorant in talking to Mr. Casaubon, all the while being visited with conscientious questionings whether she were not exalting these poor doings above measure, and contemplating them with that self-satisfaction which was the last doom of ignorance and folly. End of chapter 3「Chapter 4 of Middlemarch by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espayat. First Gentleman. Our deeds are fetters that we forge ourselves. Second Gentleman. I truly, but I think it is the world that brings the iron. Sir James seems determined to do everything you wish, said Celia, as they were driving home from an inspection of the new building site. He is a good creature, and more sensible than any one would imagine, said Dorothea, inconsiderately. You mean that he appears silly? No, no, said Dorothea, recollecting herself, and laying her hand on her sister's a moment. But he does not talk equally well on all subjects. 
"'I should think none but disagreeable people do,' said Celia, in her usual purring way. "'They must be very dreadful to live with. Only think, at breakfast and always—' Dorothea laughed. "'Oh, Kitty, you are a wonderful creature.' She pinched Celia's chin, being in the mood now to think her very winning and lovely, fit hereafter to be an eternal cherub and if it were not doctrinally wrong to say so, hardly more in need of salvation than a squirrel. Of course, people need not be always talking well. Only one tells the quality of their minds when they try to talk well. You mean that Sir James tries and fails? I was speaking generally. Why do you catechize me about Sir James? It is not the object of his life to please me. Now, Dodo, can you really believe that? Certainly. He thinks of me as a future sister, that is all. Dorothea had never hinted this before, waiting from a certain shyness on such subjects which was mutual between the sisters, until it should be introduced by some decisive event. Celia blushed, but said at once, Pray do not make that mistake any longer, Dodo. When Tantrip was brushing my hair the other day, she said that Sir James Mann knew from Mrs. Cadwallader's maid that Sir James was to marry the eldest Miss Brooke. "'How can you let Tantrip talk such gossip to you, Celia?' said Dorothea, indignantly, not the less angry because details asleep in her memory were now awakened to confirm the unwelcome revelation. "'You must have asked her questions. It is degrading.' I see no harm at all in Tantrip's talking to me. It is better to hear what people say. You see what mistakes you make by taking up notions. I am quite sure that Sir James means to make you an offer, and he believes that you will accept him, especially since you have been so pleased with him about the plans. And Uncle, too, I know he expects it. Everyone can see that Sir James is very much in love with you. The revulsion was so strong and painful in Dorothea's mind that the tears welled up and flowed abundantly. All her dear plans were embittered, and she thought with disgust of Sir James conceiving that she recognized him as her lover. There was vexation, too, on account of Celia. "'How could he expect it?' she burst forth in her most impetuous manner. "'I have never agreed with him about anything but the cottages.' I was barely polite to him before. But you have been so pleased with him since then. He has begun to feel quite sure that you are fond of him. Fond of him, Celia! How can you choose such odious expressions? said Dorothea passionately. Dear me, Dorothea, I suppose it would be right for you to be fond of a man whom you accepted for a husband. It is offensive to me to say that Sir James could think I was fond of him. Besides, it is not the right word for the feeling I must have towards the man I would accept as a husband. Well, I am sorry for Sir James. I thought it right to tell you, because you went on as you always do, never looking just where you are and treading in the wrong place. You always see what nobody else sees. It is impossible to satisfy you, yet you never see what is quite plain. That's your way, Dodo. Something certainly gave Celia unusual courage, and she was not sparing the sister of whom she was occasionally in awe. 
who can tell what just criticisms mirror the cat may be passing on us beings of wider speculation it is very painful said dorothea feeling scourged i can have no more to do with the cottages i must be uncivil to him i must tell him i will have nothing to do with them it is very painful her eyes filled again with tears wait a little think about it you know he is going away for a day or two to see his sister there will be nobody besides lovegood celia could not help relenting poor dodo she went on in an amiable staccato it is very hard it is your favorite fad to draw plans fad to draw plans do you think i only care about my fellow-creatures houses in that childish way i may well make mistakes how can one ever do anything nobly christian living among people with such petty thoughts no more was said dorothea was too much jarred to recover her temper and behaved so as to show that she admitted any error in herself she was disposed rather to accuse the intolerable narrowness and the purblind conscience of the society around her and celia was no longer the eternal cherub but a thorn in her spirit a pink and white nullifidian worse than any discouraging presence in the pilgrim's progress the fad of drawing plans what was life worth what great faith was possible when the whole effect of one's actions could be withered up into such parched rubbish as that when she got out of the carriage her cheeks were pale and her eyelids red she was an image of sorrow and her uncle who met her in the hall would have been alarmed if celia had not been close to her looking so pretty and composed that he at once concluded dorothea's tears to have their origin in her excessive religiousness he had returned during their absence from a journey to the county town about a petition for the pardon of some criminal well my dears he said kindly as they went up to kiss him i hope nothing disagreeable has happened while i have been away no uncle said celia we have been to freshet to look at the cottages we thought you would have been home to lunch i came by lowick to lunch you didn't know i came by lowick and i have brought a couple of pamphlets for you dorothea in the library you know they lie on the table in the library it seemed as if an electric stream went through dorothea thrilling her from despair into expectation they were pamphlets about the early church the oppression of celia tantrip and sir james was shaken off and she walked straight to the library celia went upstairs mr brooke was detained by a message but when he re-entered the library he found dorothea seated and already deep in one of the pamphlets which had some marginal manuscript of mr casaubon's taking it in as eagerly as she might have taken in the scent of a fresh bouquet after a dry hot dreary walk she was getting away from tipton and freshet and her own sad liability to tread in the wrong places on her way to the new jerusalem mr brooke sat down in his armchair stretched his legs toward the wood-fire which had fallen into a wondrous mass of glowing dice between the dogs and rubbed his hands gently looking very mildly towards dorothea 
but with a neutral, leisurely air, as if he had nothing particular to say. Dorothea closed her pamphlet, as soon as she was aware of her uncle's presence, and rose as if to go. Usually she would have been interested about her uncle's merciful errand on behalf of the criminal, but her late agitation had made her absent-minded. "'I came back by Lowick, you know,' said Mr. Brooke, not as if with any intention to arrest her departure, but apparently from his usual tendency to say what he had said before. This fundamental principle of human speech was markedly exhibited in Mr. Brooke. I lunched there and saw Casaubon's library, and that kind of thing. There's a sharp air, driving. Won't you sit down, my dear? You look cold. Dorothea felt quite inclined to accept the invitation. Sometimes, when her uncle's easy way of taking things did not happen to be exasperating, it was rather soothing. She threw off her mantle and bonnet, and sat down opposite to him, enjoying the glow, but lifting up her beautiful hands for a screen. They were not thin hands or small hands, but powerful, feminine, maternal hands. She seemed to be holding them up in propitiation for her passionate desire to know and to think, which in the unfriendly mediums of Tipton and Freshet had issued in crying and red eyelids. She bethought herself now of the condemned criminal. "'What news have you brought about the sheep-stealer, uncle?' "'What, poor Bunch? Well, it seems we can't get him off. He is to be hanged.' Dorothea's brow took an expression of reprobation and pity. "'Hanged, you know,' said Mr. Brooke, with a quiet nod. "'Poor Romilly. He would have helped us. I knew Romilly. Casaubon didn't know Romilly. He is a little buried in books, you know, Casaubon is.' When a man has great studies and is writing a great work, he must, of course, give up seeing much of the world. How can he go about making acquaintances? That's true. But a man mopes, you know. I have always been a bachelor, too, but I have that sort of disposition that I never moped. It was my way to go about everywhere and take in everything. I never moped. But I can see that Casaubon does, you know. He wants a companion. A companion, you know. It would be a great honor to anyone to be his companion, said Dorothea, energetically. You like him, eh? said Mr. Brooke, without showing any surprise or other emotion. Well, now, I've known Casaubon ten years, ever since he came to Lowick. But I never got anything out of him, any ideas, you know. However, he is a tip-top man, and may be a bishop, that kind of thing, you know, if Peel stays in. And he has a very high opinion of you, my dear. Dorothea could not speak. The fact is, he has a very high opinion indeed of you. And he speaks uncommonly well, does Casaubon. He has deferred to me, you not being of age. In short, I have promised to speak to you, though I told him I thought there was not much chance. I was bound to tell him that. I said, my niece is very young, and that kind of thing. But I didn't think it necessary to go into everything. However, the long and the short of it is that he has asked my permission to make you an offer of marriage, 
of marriage, you know, said Mr. Brooke, with his explanatory nod. I thought it better to tell you, my dear. No one could have detected any anxiety in Mr. Brooke's manner, but he did really wish to know something of his niece's mind, that, if there were any need for advice, he might give it in time. What feeling he, as a magistrate who had taken in so many ideas, could make room for, was unmixedly kind. Since Dorothea did not speak immediately, he repeated, "'I thought it better to tell you, my dear.' "'Thank you, uncle,' said Dorothea, in a clear, unwavering tone. "'I am very grateful to Mr. Casaubon. If he makes me an offer, I shall accept him. I admire and honor him more than any man I ever saw.' Mr. Brooke paused a little and then said in a lingering low tone, "'Ah, well!' "'He is a good match in some respects. But now, Chetham is a good match, and our land lies together. I shall never interfere against your wishes, my dear. People should have their own way in marriage, and that sort of thing, up to a certain point, you know. I have always said that, up to a certain point.' I wish you to marry well, and I have good reason to believe that Chetham wishes to marry you. I mention it, you know. It is impossible that I should ever marry Sir James Chetham, said Dorothea. If he thinks of marrying me, he has made a great mistake. That is it, you see. One never knows. I should have thought Chetham was just the sort of man a woman would like now. Pray do not mention him in that light again, uncle said Dorothea, feeling some of her late irritation revive. Mr. Brooke wondered, and felt that women were an inexhaustible subject of study, since even he at his age was not in a perfect state of scientific prediction about them. Here was a fellow like Chetham, with no chance at all. But, well, Casabon now, there is no hurry, I mean, for you. It's true— every year will tell upon him. He is over five-and-forty, you know. I should say a good seven-and-twenty years older than you. To be sure, if you like learning and standing and that sort of thing, we can't have everything. And his income is good. He has a handsome property independent of the church. His income is good. Still, he is not young, and I must not conceal from you, my dear." but I think his health is not over-strong. I know nothing else against him. I should not wish to have a husband very near my own age, said Dorothea, with grave decision. I should wish to have a husband who was above me in judgment and in all knowledge. Mr. Brooke repeated his subdued. Ah? I thought you had more of your own opinion than most girls. I thought you liked your own opinion. Liked it, you know. I cannot imagine myself living without some opinions, but I should wish to have good reasons for them, and a wise man could help me to see which opinions had the best foundation, and would help me to live according to them. Very true. You couldn't put the thing better. Couldn't put it better beforehand, you know. But there are oddities in things, continued Mr. Brooke, whose conscience was really roused, to do the best he could for his niece on this occasion. 
life isn't cast in a mould not cut out by rule and line and that sort of thing i never married myself and it will be the better for you and yours the fact is i never loved any one well enough to put myself into a noose for them it is a noose you know temper now there is temper and a husband likes to be master i know that i must expect trials uncle marriage is a state of higher duties i never thought of it as a mere personal ease said poor dorothea well you are not fond of show a great establishment balls dinners and that kind of thing i can see that casaubon's ways might suit you better than chettam's and you shall do as you like my dear i would not hinder casaubon i said so at once for there is no knowing how anything may turn out you have not the same tastes as every young lady and a clergyman and a scholar who may be a bishop that kind of thing may suit you better than chettam chettam is a good fellow a good sound-hearted fellow you know but he doesn't go much into ideas i did when i was his age but casaubon's eyes now i think he has hurt them with a little too much reading i should be all the happier uncle the more room there was for me to help him said dorothea ardently you have quite made up your mind i see well my dear the fact is i have a letter for you in my pocket mr brooke handed the letter to dorothea but as she rose to go away he added there is not too much hurry my dear think about it you know when dorothea had left him he reflected that he had certainly spoken strongly he had put the risks of marriage before her in a striking manner it was his duty to do so but as to pretending to be wise for young people no uncle however much he had travelled in his youth absorbed the new ideas and dined with celebrities now deceased could pretend to judge what sort of marriage would turn out well for a young girl who preferred casaubon to chettam in short woman was a problem which since brooke's mind felt blank before it could be hardly less complicated than the revolutions of an irregular solid End of chapter four chapter five of middlemarch by george eliot this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by margaret espayat hard students are commonly troubled with gouts catars rooms cachexia bradypepsia bad eyes stone and colic crudities oppilations vertigos winds consumptions and all such diseases as come by overmuch sitting they are most part lean dry ill-coloured and all through immoderate pains and extraordinary studies if you will not believe the truth of this look upon the great tostatus and thomas aquinas works and tell me whether those men took pains burton's anatomy of melancholy this was mr casaubon's letter my dear miss brooke i have your guardian's permission to address you on a subject than which i have none more at heart i am not i trust mistaken in the recognition of some deeper correspondence than that of date in the fact that a consciousness of need in my own life had arisen 
contemporaneously with the possibility of my becoming acquainted with you. For in the first hour of meeting you, I had an impression of your eminent and perhaps exclusive fitness to supply that need, connected, I may say, with such activity of the affections as even the preoccupations of a work too special to be abdicated could not uninterruptedly dissimulate, and each succeeding opportunity for observation has given the impression an added depth by convincing me more emphatically of that fitness which I had preconceived, and thus evoking more decisively those affections to which I have but now referred. Our conversations have, I think, made sufficiently clear to you the tenor of my life and purposes, a tenor unsuited, I am aware, to the commoner order of minds. But I have discerned in you an elevation of thought and a capability of devotedness, which I had hitherto not conceived to be compatible either with the early bloom of youth or with those graces of sex that may be set at once to win and to confer distinction when combined, as they notably are in you, with the mental qualities above indicated. It was, I confess, beyond my hope to meet with this rare combination of elements, both solid and attractive, adapted to supply aid in graver labors and to cast a charm over vacant hours and but for the event of my introduction to you, which, let me say again, I trust not to be superficially coincident with foreshadowing needs, but providentially related thereto as stages towards the completion of a life's plan, I should presumably have gone on to the last without any attempt to lighten my solitariness by a matrimonial union. Such, my dear Miss Brooke, is the accurate statement of my feelings, and I rely on your kind indulgence in venturing now to ask you how far your own are of a nature to confirm my happy presentiment. To be accepted by you as your husband and the earthly guardian of your welfare, I should regard as the highest of providential gifts. In return, I can at least offer you an affection hitherto unwasted and the faithful consecration of a life which, however short in the sequel, has no backward pages whereon, if you choose to turn them, you will find records such as might justly cause you either bitterness or shame. I await the expression of your sentiments with an anxiety which it would be the part of wisdom, were it possible, to divert by a more arduous labor than usual but in this order of experience I am still young, and in looking forward to an unfavorable possibility I cannot but feel that resignation to solitude will be more difficult after the temporary illumination of hope. In any case, I shall remain, yours with sincere devotion, Edward Casabon. Dorothea trembled while she read this letter. Then she fell on her knees buried her face and sobbed. She could not pray. Under the rush of solemn emotion in which thoughts became vague and images floated uncertainly, she could but cast herself, with a childlike sense of reclining, in the lap of a divine consciousness which sustained her own. She remained in that attitude till it was time to dress for dinner. How could it occur to her to examine the letter, to look at it critically as a profession of love. 
her whole soul was possessed by the fact that a fuller life was opening before her. She was a neophyte about to enter on a higher grade of initiation. She was going to have room for the energies which stirred uneasily under the dimness and pressure of her own ignorance and the petty peremptoriness of the world's habits. Now she would be able to devote herself to large yet definite duties. Now she would be allowed to live continually in the light of a mind that she could reverence. This hope was not unmixed with the glow of proud delight, the joyous maiden surprise that she was chosen by the man whom her admiration had chosen. All Dorothea's passion was transfused through a mind struggling towards an ideal life. The radiance of her transfigured girlhood fell on the first object that came within its level. The impetus with which inclination became resolution was heightened by those little events of the day which had roused her discontent with the actual conditions of her life. After dinner, when Celia was playing an air with variations, a small kind of tinkling which symbolized the aesthetic part of the young lady's education, Dorothea went up to her room to answer Mr. Casaubon's letter. Why should she defer the answer? She wrote it over three times, not because she wished to change the wording, but because her hand was unusually uncertain, and she could not bear that Mr. Casaubon should think her handwriting bad and illegible. She piqued herself on writing a hand in which each letter was distinguishable without any large range of conjecture, and she meant to make much use of this accomplishment to save Mr. Casaubon's eyes. Three times she wrote, My dear Mr. Casaubon, I am very grateful to you for loving me and thinking me worthy to be your wife. I can look forward to no better happiness than that which would be one with yours. If I said more, it would be only the same thing written out at greater length, for I cannot now dwell on any other thought that I may be through life. Yours devotedly, Dorothea Brooke. Later in the evening she followed her uncle into the library to give him the letter that he might send it in the morning. He was surprised, but his surprise only issued in a few moments' silence, during which he pushed about various objects on his writing-table, and finally stood with his back to the fire, his glasses on his nose, looking at the address of Dorothea's letter. "'Have you thought enough about this, my dear?' he said at last. "'There was no need to think long, uncle. I know of nothing to make me vacillate. If I changed my mind, it must be because of something important and entirely new to me.' "'Ah, then you have accepted him. Then Chetham has no chance?' "'Has Chetham offended you? Offended you, you know? What is it you don't like in Chetham?' "'There is nothing that I like in him,' said Dorothea, rather impetuously. Mr. Brooke threw his head and shoulders backward, as if someone had thrown a light missile at him. Dorothea immediately felt some self-rebuke, and said, "'I mean in the light of a husband. He is very kind, I think, really very good about the cottages, a well-meaning man.' "'But you must have a scholar and that sort of thing. "'Well, it lies a little in our family. "'I had it myself, that love of knowledge and going into everything. "'A little too much. "'It took me too far, though that sort of thing doesn't often run in the female line. 
or it runs underground like the rivers in greece you know it comes out in the suns clever sons clever mothers i went a good deal into that at one time however my dear i have always said that people should do as they like in these things up to a certain point i couldn't as your guardian have consented to a bad match but casaubon stands well his position is good i'm afraid chettam will be hurt though and mrs cadwallader will blame me that evening of course celia knew nothing of what had happened she attributed dorothea's abstracted manner and the evidence of further crying since they had got home to the temper she had been in about sir james chettam and the buildings and was careful not to give further offence having once said what she wanted to say celia had no disposition to recur to disagreeable subjects it had been her nature when a child never to quarrel with any one only to observe with wonder that they quarrelled with her and looked like turkey-cocks whereupon she was ready to play at cat's cradle with them whenever they recovered themselves and as to dorothea it had always been her way to find something wrong in her sister's words though celia inwardly protested that she always said just how things were and nothing else she never did and never could put words together out of her own head but the best of dodo was that she did not keep angry for long together now though they had hardly spoken to each other all the evening yet when celia put by her work intending to go to bed a proceeding in which she was always much the earlier dorothea who was seated on a low stool unable to occupy herself except in meditation said with the musical intonation which in moments of deep but quiet feeling made her speech like a fine bit of recitative celia dear come and kiss me holding her arms open as she spoke celia knelt down to get to the right level and gave her a little butterfly kiss while dorothea encircled her with gentle arms and pressed her lips gravely on each cheek in turn don't sit up dodo you are so pale to-night go to bed soon said celia in a comfortable way without any touch of pathos no dear i am very very happy said dorothea fervently so much the better thought celia but how strangely dodo goes from one extreme to the other the next day at luncheon the butler handing something to mr brooke said jonas has come back sir and has brought this letter mr brooke read the letter and then nodding toward dorothea said casaubon my dear he will be here to dinner he didn't wait to write more didn't wait you know it could not seem remarkable to celia that a dinner guest should be announced to her sister beforehand but her eyes following the same direction as her uncle's she was struck with the peculiar effect of the announcement on dorothea it seemed as if something like the reflection of a white sunlit wing had passed across her features ending in one of her rare blushes for the first time it entered into celia's mind that there might be something more between mr casaubon and her sister than his delight in bookish talk and her delight in listening hitherto she had classed the admiration for this ugly and learned acquaintance with the admiration for monsieur le Ray at lausanne so ugly and learned dorothea had never been tired of listening to old monsieur Liret when celia's feet were as cold as possible 
and when it had really become dreadful to see the skin of his bald head moving about. Why, then, should her enthusiasm not extend to Mr. Casaubon simply in the same way as to Monsieur Liret? And it seemed probable that all learned men had a sort of schoolmaster's view of young people. But now Celia was really startled at the suspicion which had darted into her mind. She was seldom taken by surprise in this way. Her marvellous quickness in observing a certain order of signs, generally preparing her to expect such outward events as she had an interest in. Here was something really to vex her about Dodo. It was all very well not to accept Sir James Chetham, but the idea of marrying Mr. Casaubon! Celia felt a sort of shame, mingled with a sense of the ludicrous. But, perhaps Dodo, if she were really bordering on such an extravagance, might be turned away from it. Experience had often shown that her impressibility might be calculated on. The day was damp, and they were not going to walk out, so they both went up to their sitting-room, and there Celia observed that Dorothea, instead of settling down with her usual diligent interest to some occupation, simply leaned on her elbow on an open book and looked out of the window at the great cedar silvered with the damp. She herself had taken up the making of a toy for the curate's children, and was not going to enter on any subject too precipitately. Dorothea was, in fact, thinking that it was desirable for Celia to know of the momentous change in Mr. Casaubon's position since he had last been in the house. It did not seem fair to leave her in ignorance of what would necessarily affect her attitude towards him, but it was impossible not to shrink from telling her. Dorothea accused herself of some meanness in this timidity. It was always odious to her to have any small fears or contrivances about her actions, but at this moment she was seeking the highest aid possible that she might not dread the corrosiveness of Celia's pretty, carnally-minded prose. Her reverie was broken, and the difficulty of decision banished by Celia's small and rather guttural voice speaking in its usual tone of a remark aside or a by-the-by. "'Is any one else coming to dine besides Mr. Casaubon?' "'Not that I know of.' "'I hope there is someone else, then I shall not hear him eat his soup so.' "'What is there remarkable about his soup-eating?' "'Really, Dodo, can't you hear how he scrapes his spoon? And he always blinks before he speaks. I don't know whether Locke blinked, but I'm sure I am sorry for those who sat opposite to him if he did.' "'Celia,' said Dorothea, with emphatic gravity, "'pray don't make any more observations of that kind.' "'Why not? They are quite true,' returned Celia, who had her reasons for persevering though she was beginning to be a little afraid. Many things are true which only the commonest minds observe. Then I think the commonest minds must be rather useful. I think it is a pity Mr. Casaubon's mother had not a commoner mind. She might have taught him better. Celia was inwardly frightened and ready to run away, now she had hurled this light javelin. Dorothea's feelings had gathered to an avalanche, and there could be no further preparation. "'It is right to tell you, Celia, that I am engaged to marry Mr. Casaubon.' 
Perhaps Celia had never turned so pale before. The paper man she was making would have had his leg injured, but for her habitual care of whatever she held in her hands. She laid the fragile figure down at once, and sat perfectly still for a few moments. When she spoke there was a tear gathering. "'Oh, Dodo, I hope you will be happy.' Her sisterly tenderness could not but surmount other feelings at this moment, and her fears were the fears of affection. Dorothea was still hurt and agitated. "'Is it quite decided, then?' said Celia, in an awed undertone. "'And uncle knows?' "'I have accepted Mr. Casaubon's offer. My uncle brought me the letter that contained it. He knew about it beforehand.' "'I beg your pardon if I have said anything to hurt you, Dodo,' said Celia, with a slight sob. She never could have thought that she could feel as she did. There was something funereal in the whole affair, and Mr. Casaubon seemed to be the officiating clergyman about whom it would be indecent to make remarks. "'Never mind, Kitty, do not grieve. We should never admire the same people. I often offend in something of the same way.' I am apt to speak too strongly of those who don't please me." In spite of this magnanimity, Dorothea was still smarting, perhaps as much from Celia's subdued astonishment as from her small criticisms. Of course all the world round Tipton would be out of sympathy with this marriage. Dorothea knew of no one who thought as she did about life and its best objects. Nevertheless, before the evening was at an end, she was very happy. In an hour's tete-a-tete -tete with Mr. Casaubon she talked to him with more freedom than she had ever felt before, even pouring out her joy at the thought of devoting herself to him, and of learning how she might best share and further all his great ends. Mr. Casaubon was touched with an unknown delight, what man would not have been, at this childlike unrestrained ardor. He was not surprised, what lover would have been, that he should be the object of it. "'My dear young lady, Miss Brooke, Dorothea,' he said, pressing her hand between his hands, "'this is a happiness greater than I had ever imagined to be in reserve for me, that I should ever meet with a mind and person so rich in the mingled graces which could render marriage desirable, was far indeed from my conception.' You have all, nay, more than all those qualities which I have regarded as the characteristic excellences of womanhood. The great charm of your sex is its capability of an ardent, self-sacrificing affection, and herein we see its fitness to round and complete the existence of our own. Hitherto I have known few pleasures save of the severer kind, my satisfactions have been those of the solitary student. I have been little disposed to gather flowers that would wither in my hand, but now I shall pluck them with eagerness, to place them in your bosom. No speech could have been more thoroughly honest in its intention. The frigid rhetoric at the end was as sincere as the bark of a dog, or the cawing of an amorous rook. Would it not be rash to conclude that there was no passion behind those sonnets to Delia which strike us as the thin music of a mandolin? 
Dorothea's faith supplied all that Mr. Casaubon's words seemed to leave unsaid. What believer sees a disturbing omission or infelicity? The text, whether of prophet or of poet, expands for whatever we can put into it, and even his bad grammar is sublime. "'I am very ignorant. You will quite wonder at my ignorance,' said Dorothea. "'I have so many thoughts that may be quite mistaken, and now I shall be able to tell them all to you, and ask you about them. But,' she added, with rapid imagination of Mr. Casaubon's probable feeling, "'I will not trouble you too much, only when you are inclined to listen to me. You must often be weary with the pursuit of subjects in your own track. I shall gain enough if you will take me with you there. How should I be able now to persevere in any path without your companionship, said Mr. Casaubon, kissing her candid brow, and feeling that heaven had vouchsafed him a blessing in every way suited to his peculiar wants. He was being unconsciously wrought upon by the charms of a nature which was entirely without hidden calculations either for immediate effects or for remoter ends. It was this which made Dorothea so childlike, and according to some judges so stupid, with all her reputed cleverness, as, for example, in the present case of throwing herself, metaphorically speaking, at Mr. Casaubon's feet and kissing his unfashionable shoe-ties as if he were a protestant pope she was not in the least teaching mr casaubon to ask if he were good enough for her but merely asking herself anxiously how she could be good enough for mr casaubon before he left the next day it had been decided that the marriage should take place within six weeks why not mr casaubon's house was ready it was not a parsonage, but a considerable mansion, with much land attached to it. The parsonage was inhabited by the curate, who did all the duty except preaching the morning sermon. End of chapter 5《Recording by Margaret Espayat. My lady's tongue is like the meadow-blades that cut you stroking them with idle hand. Nice cutting is her function. She divides with spiritual edge the millet-seed, and makes intangible savings. As Mr. Casaubon's carriage was passing out of the gateway, it arrested the entrance of a pony phaeton driven by a lady with a servant seated behind. It was doubtful whether the recognition had been mutual, for Mr. Casaubon was looking absently before him, but the lady was quick-eyed, and threw a nod and a how-do-you-do in the nick of time. In spite of her shabby bonnet and very old Indian shawl, it was plain that the lodge-keeper regarded her as an important personage from the low curtsy which was dropped on the entrance of the small phaeton. "'Well, Mrs. Fitchett, how are your fowls laying now?' said the high-coloured, dark-eyed lady, with the clearest chiselled utterance. "'Pretty well for layin', madam, but they've ta'en to eatin' their eggs. I've no peace o' mind with them at all.' "'Oh, the cannibals! Better sell them cheap at once. What will you sell them a couple? One can't eat fowls of a bad character at a high price.' 
"'Well, madam, half a crown. I couldn't let him go not under.' "'Half a crown these times. Come now, for the rector's chicken broth on a Sunday. He has consumed all hours that I can spare. You are half paid with the sermon, Mrs. Fitchett, remember that. Take a pair of tumbler-pigeons for them, little beauties. You must come and see them. You have no tumblers among your pigeons.' "'Well, madam, Master Fitchett shall go and see him after work.' He's very hot on new sorts, to oblige you. Oblige me! It will be the best bargain he ever made. A pair of church pigeons for a couple of wicked Spanish fowls that eat their own eggs. Don't you and Fitchett boast too much, that is all. The phaeton was driven onwards with the last words, leaving Mrs. Fitchett laughing, and shaking her head slowly, with an interjectional, Surely, surely from which it might be inferred that she would have found the countryside somewhat duller if the rector's lady had been less free-spoken and less of a skinflint. Indeed, both the farmers and laborers in the parishes of Freshet and Tipton would have felt a sad lack of conversation but for the stories about what Mrs. Cadwallader said and did. A lady of immeasurably high birth, descended, as it were, from unknown earls, dim as the crowd of heroic shades, who pleaded poverty, pared down prices, and cut jokes in the most companionable manner, though with a turn of tongue that let you know who she was. Such a lady gave a neighborliness to both rank and religion, and mitigated the bitterness of uncommuted tithe. A much more exemplary character with an infusion of sour dignity would not have furthered their comprehension of the thirty-nine articles, and would have been less socially uniting. Mr. Brooke, seeing Mrs. Cadwallader's merits from a different point of view, winced a little when her name was announced in the library, where he was sitting alone. "'I see you have had our Loic Cicero here,' she said, seating herself comfortably, throwing back her wraps, and showing a thin but well-built figure." I suspect you and he are brewing some bad politics, else you would not be seen so much of the lively man. I shall inform against you. Remember, you are both suspicious characters since you took Peel's side about the Catholic bill. I shall tell everybody that you are going to put up for Middlemarch on the Whig side when old Pinkerton resigns, and that Casabon is going to help you in an underhand manner, going to bribe the voters with pamphlets and throw open the public-houses to distribute them. Come, confess. Nothing of the sort, said Mr. Brooke, smiling and rubbing his eyeglasses, but really blushing a little at the impeachment. Casabon and I don't talk politics much. He doesn't care about the philanthropic side of things, punishments and that kind of thing. He only cares about church questions. That is not my line of action, you know. "'Rather too much, my friend. I have heard of your doings. Who was it that sold his bit of land to the Papists at Middlemarch? I believe you bought it on purpose. You are a perfect Guy Fox. See if you are not burnt in effigy this 5th of November coming. Humphrey would not come to quarrel with you about it, so I am come.' "'Very good. I was prepared to be persecuted for not persecuting. Not persecuting, you know.' There you go. That is a piece of claptrap you have got ready for the hustings. Now do not let them lure you to the hustings, my dear Mr. Brooke. 
a man always makes a fool of himself speechifying. There's no excuse but being on the right side, so that you can ask a blessing on your humming and hawing. You will lose yourself, I forewarn you. You will make a Saturday pie of all parties' opinions, and be pelted by everybody. That is what I expect, you know, said Mr. Brooke, not wishing to betray how little he enjoyed this prophetic sketch. What I expect as an independent man. As to the Whigs, a man who goes with the thinkers is not likely to be hooked on by any party. He may go with them up to a certain point, up to a certain point, you know. But that is what you ladies never understand. Where your certain point is? No. I should like to be told how a man can have any certain point when he belongs to no party, leading a roving life, and never letting his friends know his address. Nobody knows where Brooke will be. There's no counting on Brooke. That is what people say of you, to be quite frank. Now, do turn respectable. How will you like going to sessions with everybody looking shy on you, and you with a bad conscience and an empty pocket? I don't pretend to argue with a lady on politics, said Mr. Brooke, with an air of smiling indifference, but feeling rather unpleasantly conscious that this attack of Mrs. Cadwallader's had opened the defensive campaign to which certain rash steps had exposed him. Your sex are not thinkers, you know. Varium et mutabili semper. That kind of thing. You don't know, Virgil. I knew. Mr. Brooke reflected in time that he had not the personal acquaintance of the Augustan poet. I was going to say, poor Stoddart, you know. That was what he said. You ladies are always against an independent attitude, a man's caring for nothing but the truth, and that sort of thing. And there is no part of the county where opinion is narrower than it is here. I don't mean to throw stones, you know, but somebody is wanted to take the independent line. And if I don't take it, who will? Who? Why, any upstart who has got neither blood nor position. People of standing should consume their independent nonsense at home, not hawk it about. And you, who are going to marry your niece, as good as your daughter, to one of our best men. Sir James would be cruelly annoyed. It will be too hard on him if you turn round now and make yourself a Whig signboard. Mr. Brooke again winced inwardly, for Dorothea's engagement had no sooner been decided than he thought of Mrs. Cadwallader's prospective taunts. It might have been easy for ignorant observers to say, quarrel with Mrs. Cadwallader, but where is a country gentleman to go who quarrels with his oldest neighbors? Who could taste the fine flavor in the name of Brooke if it were delivered casually, like a wine without a seal? Certainly a man can only be cosmopolitan up to a certain point. I hope Chetham and I shall always be good friends, but I am sorry to say there is no prospect of his marrying my niece, said Mr. Brooke much relieved to see through the window that Celia was coming in. "'Why not?' said Mrs. Cadwallader, with a sharp note of surprise. "'It is hardly a fortnight since you and I were talking about it.' "'My niece has chosen another suitor. Has chosen him, you know. I have had nothing to do with it. I should have preferred Chetham, and I should have said Chetham was the man any girl would have chosen. 
but there is no accounting for these things. Your sex is capricious, you know. Why, whom do you mean to say that you are going to let her marry? Mrs. Cadwallader's mind was rapidly surveying the possibilities of choice for Dorothea. But here Celia entered, blooming from a walk in the garden, and the greeting with her delivered Mr. Brooke from the necessity of answering immediately. He got up hastily, and saying, "'By the way, I must speak to write about the horses,' shuffled quickly out of the room. "'My dear child, what is this? This about your sister's engagement,' said Mrs. Cadwallader. "'She is engaged to marry Mr. Casabon,' said Celia, resorting, as usual, to the simplest statement of fact, and enjoying this opportunity of speaking to the rector's wife alone. "'This is frightful! How long has it been going on?' I only knew of it yesterday. They're going to be married in six weeks. Well, my dear, I wish you the joy of your brother-in-law. I am so sorry for Dorothea. Sorry? It is her doing, I suppose. Yes, she says Mr. Casabon has a great soul. With all my heart. Oh, Mrs. Cadwallader, I don't think it can be nice to marry a man with a great soul. Well, my dear, take warning. You know the look of one now. When the next comes and wants to marry you, don't you accept him? I'm sure I never should. No, one such in a family is enough. So, your sister never cared about Sir James Chetham. What would you have said to him for a brother-in-law? I should have liked that very much. I am sure he would have been a good husband. Only— Celia added, with a slight blush. She sometimes seemed to blush as she breathed. I don't think he would have suited Dorothea. Not high-flown enough? Dodo is very strict. She thinks so much about everything, and is so particular about what one says. Sir James never seemed to please her. She must have encouraged him, I am sure. That is not very creditable. Please don't be angry with Dodo. She does not see things. She thought so much about the cottages, and she was rude to Sir James sometimes. But he is so kind, and he never noticed it. Well, said Mrs. Cadwallader, putting on her shawl and rising, as if in haste, I must go straight to Sir James and break this to him. He will have brought his mother back by this time, and I must call. Your uncle will never tell him. We are all disappointed, my dear. Young people should think of their families in marrying. I set a bad example, married a poor clergyman, and made myself a pitiable object among the de Bracys, obliged to get my coals by stratagem, and pray to heaven for my salad oil. However, Casabon has money enough. I must do him that justice. As to his blood, I suppose the family quarterings are three cuttlefish sable, and a commentator rampant. By the way, before I go, my dear, I must speak to your Mrs. Carter about pastry. I want to send my young cook to learn of her. Poor people with four children like us, you know, can't afford to keep a good cook. I have no doubt Mrs. Carter will oblige me. Sir James Cook is a perfect dragon. In less than an hour Mrs. Cadwallader had circumvented Mrs. Carter and driven to Freshet Hall which was not far from her own parsonage, her husband being resident in Freshen and keeping a curate in Tipton. 
Sir James Chetham had returned from the short journey which had kept him absent for a couple of days, and had changed his dress, intending to ride over to Tipton Grange. His horse was standing at the door when Mrs. Cadwallader drove up, and he immediately appeared there himself, whip in hand. Lady Chetham had not yet returned, but Mrs. Cadwallader's errand could not be dispatched in the presence of grooms, so she asked to be taken into the conservatory close by, to look at the new plants, and on coming to a contemplative stand she said, "'I have a great shock for you. I hope you are not so far gone in love as you pretended to be.' It was of no use protesting against Mrs. Cadwallader's way of putting things, but Sir James's countenance changed a little. He felt a vague alarm. "'I do believe Brooke is going to expose himself after all. I accused him of meaning to stand for Middlemarch on the liberal side, and he looked silly and never denied it, talked about the independent line, and the usual nonsense.' "'Is that all?' said Sir James, much relieved. "'Why?' rejoined Mrs. Cadwallader, with a sharper note. "'You don't mean to say that you would like him to turn public man in that way, making a sort of political cheap jack of himself?' "'He might be dissuaded, I should think. He would not like the expense.' "'That is what I told him. He is vulnerable to reason there, always a few grains of common sense in an ounce of miserliness.' miserliness is a capital quality to run in families it's the safe side for madness to dip on and there must be a little crack in the brook family else we should not see what we are to see what brook standing for middlemarch worse than that i really feel a little responsible i always told you miss brook would be such a fine match i knew there was a great deal of nonsense in her a flighty sort of methodistical stuff. But these things wear out of girls. However, I am taken by surprise for once. What do you mean, Mrs. Cadwallader? said Sir James. His fear lest Miss Brooke should have run away to join the Moravian Brethren, or some preposterous sect unknown to good society, was a little allayed by the knowledge that Mrs. Cadwallader always made the worst of things. What has happened to Miss Brooke? Pray speak out. Very well. She is engaged to be married. Mrs. Cadwallader paused a few moments, observing the deeply hurt expression in her friend's face, which he was trying to conceal by a nervous smile while he whipped his boot. But she soon added, Engaged to Casabon. Sir James let his whip fall and stooped to pick it up. Perhaps his face had never before gathered so much concentrated disgust as when he turned to Mrs. Cadwallader and repeated, "'Casabon! Even so, you know my errand now?' "'Good God! It is horrible! He is no better than a mummy!' The point of view has to be allowed for, as that of a blooming and disappointed rival. "'She says he is a great soul!' "'A great bladder for dried peas to rattle in,' said Mrs. Cadwallader. "'What business has an old bachelor like that to marry?' said Sir James. "'He has one foot in the grave. "'He means to draw it out again, I suppose.' "'Brooke ought not to allow it. "'He should insist on its being put off till she is of age. "'She would think better of it then. 
what is a guardian for? As if you could ever squeeze a resolution out of Brooke. Cadwallader might talk to him. Not he. Humphrey finds everybody charming. I never can get him to abuse Casabon. He will even speak well of the bishop, though I tell him it is unnatural in a beneficed clergyman. What can one do with a husband who attends so little to the decencies? I hide it as well as I can by abusing everybody myself. Come, come, cheer up. You are well rid of Miss Brooke, a girl who would have been requiring you to see the stars by daylight. Between ourselves, little Celia is worth two of her, and likely, after all, to be the better match. For this marriage to Casabon is as good as going to a nunnery. Oh, on my own account. It is for Miss Brooke's sake I think her friends should try to use their influence. Well, Humphrey doesn't know yet. But when I tell him, you may depend on it, he will say, Why not? Casabon is a good fellow. And young, young enough. These charitable people never know vinegar from wine till they have swallowed it and got the colic. However, if I were a man, I should prefer Celia especially when Dorothea was gone. The truth is, you have been courting one, and have won the other. I can see that she admires you almost as much as a man expects to be admired. If there were any one but me who said so, you might think it exaggeration. Good-bye. Sir James handed Mrs. Cadwallader to the Phaeton, and then jumped on his horse. He was not going to renounce his ride because of his friend's unpleasant news, only to ride the faster in some other direction than that of Tipton Grange. Now, why on earth should Mrs. Cadwallader have been at all busy about Mrs. Brooke's marriage, and why, when one match that she liked to think she had a hand in was frustrated, should she have straightway contrived the preliminaries of another? Was there any ingenious plot, any hide-and-seek course of action, which might be detected by a careful telescopic watch? Not at all. A telescope might have swept the parishes of Tipton and Freshet, the whole area visited by Mrs. Cadwallader in her phaeton, without witnessing any interview that could excite suspicion, or any scene from which she did not return with the same unperturbed keenness of eye and the same high natural color. In fact, if that convenient vehicle had existed in the days of the Seven Sages, one of them would doubtless have remarked that you can know little of women by following them about in their pony phaetons. Even with a microscope directed on a water-drop, we find ourselves making interpretations which turn out to be rather coarse. For whereas under a weak lens you may seem to see a creature exhibiting an active veracity into which other smaller creatures actively play as if they were so many animated tax-pennies, a stronger lens reveals to you certain tiniest hairlets which make vortices for these victims, while the swallower waits passively at his receipt of custom. In this way, metaphorically speaking, a strong lens applied to Mrs. Cadwallader's matchmaking will show a play of minute causes producing what may be called thought and speech vortices to bring her the sort of food she needed. Her life was rurally simple, quite free from secrets either foul, dangerous, or otherwise important, and not consciously affected by the great affairs of the world. 
all the more did the affairs of the great world interest her when communicated in the letters of high-born relations the way in which fascinating younger sons had gone to the dogs by marrying their mistresses the fine old-blooded idiocy of young lord taper and the furious gouty humours of old lord megatherium the exact crossing of genealogies which had brought a coronet into a new branch and widened the relations of scandal these were topics of which she retained details with the utmost accuracy and reproduced them in an excellent pickle of epigrams which she herself enjoyed the more because she believed as unquestioningly in birth and no birth as she did in game and vermin she would never have disowned any one on the ground of poverty a de bracy reduced to take his dinner in a basin would have seemed to her an example of pathos worth exaggerating and i fear his aristocratic vices would not have horrified her but her feeling toward the vulgar rich was a sort of religious hatred they had probably made all their money out of high retail prices and mrs cadwallader detested high prices for everything that was not paid in kind at the rectory such people were no part of god's design in making the world and their accent was an affliction to the ears a town where such monsters abounded was hardly more than a sort of low comedy which could not be taken account of in a well-bred scheme of the universe let any lady who is inclined to be hard on mrs cadwallader inquire into the comprehensiveness of her own beautiful views and be quite sure that they afford accommodation for all the lives which have the honor to coexist with hers with such a mind active as phosphorus biting everything that came near into the form that suited it how could mrs cadwallader feel that the miss brooks and their matrimonial prospects were alien to her especially as it had been the habit of years for her to scold mr brooke with the friendliest frankness and let him know in confidence that she thought him a poor creature from the first arrival of the young ladies in tipton she had prearranged dorothea's marriage with sir james and if it had taken place would have been quite sure that it was her doing that it should not take place after she had preconceived it caused her an irritation which every thinker will sympathize with she was the diplomatist of tipton and freshet and for anything to happen in spite of her was an offensive irregularity as to freaks like this of miss brooks mrs cadwallader had no patience with them and now that her opinion of this girl had been infected with some of her husband's weak charitableness those methodistical whims that air of being more religious than the rector and curate together came from a deeper and more constitutional disease than she had been willing to believe however said mrs cadwallader first to herself and afterwards to her husband i throw her over there was a chance if she had married sir james of her becoming a sane sensible woman he would never have contradicted her and when a woman is not contradicted she has no motive for obstinacy in her absurdities but now i wish her joy of her hair shirt it followed that mrs cadwallader must decide on another match for sir james and having made up her mind that it was to be the younger miss brooke 
there could not have been a more skilful move toward the success of her plan than her hint to the baronet that he had made an impression on Celia's heart. For he was not one of those gentlemen who languish after the unattainable Sappho's apple that laughs from the topmost bough, the charms which smile like the knot of cowslips on the cliff, not to be come at by the willing hand. He had no sonnets to write, and it could not strike him agreeably that he was not an object of preference to the woman whom he had preferred. Already the knowledge that Dorothea had chosen Mr. Casaubon had bruised his attachment and relaxed its hold. Although Sir James was a sportsman, he had some other feelings towards women than towards grouse and foxes, and did not regard his future wife in the light of prey, valuable chiefly for the excitements of the chase. Neither was he so well acquainted with the habits of primitive races as to feel that an ideal combat for her, tomahawk in hand, so to speak, was necessary to the historical continuity of the marriage tie. On the contrary, having the amiable vanity which knits us to those who are fond of us, and disinclines us to those who are indifferent, and also a good grateful nature, the mere idea that a woman had a kindness towards him spun little threads of tenderness from out his heart towards hers. Thus it happened that after Sir James had ridden rather fast for half an hour in a direction away from Tipton Grange, he slackened his pace and at last turned into a road which would lead him back by a shorter cut. Various feelings wrought in him the determination, after all, to go to the Grange to-day as if nothing new had happened. He could not help rejoicing that he had never made the offer and been rejected. Mere friendly politeness required that he should call to see Dorothea about the cottages, and now happily Mrs. Cadwallader had prepared him to offer his congratulations, if necessary, without showing too much awkwardness. He really did not like it. Giving up Dorothea was very painful to him, but there was something in the resolve to make this visit forthwith and conquer all show of feeling, which was a sort of file-biting and counter-irritant. And without his distinctly recognizing the impulse, there certainly was present in him the sense that Celia would be there, and that he should pay her more attention than he had done before. We mortals, men and women, devour many a disappointment between breakfast and dinner-time, keep back the tears, and look a little pale about the lips, and in answer to inquiries say, Oh, nothing! Pride helps us, and pride is not a bad thing when it only urges us to hide our own hurts not to hurt others. End of chapter 6 Chapter 7 of Middlemarch by George Eliot This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espaillat Piacere popon vuol la sua stagione Mr. Casabon, as might be expected, spent a great deal of his time at the Grange in these weeks, and the hindrance which courtship occasioned to the progress of his great work, the key to all mythologies, naturally made him look forward the more eagerly to the happy termination of the courtship. 
but he had deliberately incurred the hindrance, having made up his mind that it was now time for him to adorn his life with the graces of female companionship, to irradiate the gloom which fatigue was apt to hang over the intervals of studious labor with the play of female fancy, and to secure in this his culminating age, the solace of female tendance for his declining years. Hence he determined to abandon himself to the stream of feeling, and perhaps was surprised to find what an exceedingly shallow rill it was. As in droughty regions, baptism by immersion could only be performed symbolically, so Mr. Casabon found that sprinkling was the utmost approach to a plunge which his stream would afford him, and he concluded that the poet's had much exaggerated the force of masculine passion. Nevertheless, he observed with pleasure that Miss Brooke showed an ardent, submissive affection which promised to fulfill his most agreeable provisions of marriage. It had once or twice crossed his mind that possibly there was some deficiency in Dorothea to account for the moderation of his abandonment, but he was unable to discern the deficiency or to figure to himself a woman who would have pleased him better, so that there was clearly no reason to fall back upon but the exaggerations of human tradition. "'Could I not be preparing myself now to be more useful?' said Dorothea to him one morning, early in the time of courtship. "'Could I not learn to read Latin and Greek aloud to you, as Milton's daughter did to their father, without understanding what they read?' "'I fear that would be wearisome to you,' said Mr. Casaubon, smiling. "'And, indeed, if I remember rightly, the young women you have mentioned regarded that exercise in unknown tongues as a ground for rebellion against the poet.' "'Yes, but, in the first place, they were very naughty girls, else they would have been proud to minister to such a father. And, in the second place, they might have studied privately and taught themselves to understand what they read, and then it would have been interesting. I hope you don't expect me to be naughty and stupid. I expect you to be all that an exquisite young lady can be in every possible relation of life. Certainly it might be a great advantage if you were able to copy the Greek character, and to that end it were well to begin with a little reading. Dorothea seized this, as a precious permission. She would not have asked Mr. Casaubon at once to teach her the languages, dreading, of all things, to be tiresome instead of helpful. But it was not entirely out of devotion to her future husband that she wished to know Latin and Greek. Those provinces of masculine knowledge seemed to her a standing ground from which all truth could be seen more truly. As it was, she constantly doubted her own conclusions, because she felt her own ignorance. How could she be confident that one-roomed cottages were not for the glory of God, when men who knew the classics appeared to conciliate indifference to the cottages with zeal for glory? Perhaps even Hebrew might be necessary, at least the alphabet and a few roots, in order to arrive at the core of things and judge soundly on the social duties of the Christian. And she had not reached that point of renunciation at which she would have been satisfied with having a wise husband, 
she wished, poor child, to be wise herself. Miss Brooke was certainly very naive with all her alleged cleverness. Celia, whose mind had never been thought too powerful, saw the emptiness of other people's pretensions much more readily. To have in general but little feeling seems to be the only security against feeling too much on any particular occasion. However, Mr. Casaubon consented to listen and teach for an hour together like a schoolmaster of little boys, or rather like a lover, to whom a mistress's elementary ignorance and difficulties have a touching fitness. Few scholars would have disliked teaching the alphabet under such circumstances. But Dorothea herself was a little shocked and discouraged at her own stupidity, and the answers she got to some timid questions about the value of the Greek accents gave her a painful suspicion that here indeed there might be secrets not capable of explanation to a woman's reason. Mr. Brooke had no doubt on that point, and expressed himself with his usual strength upon it one day that he came into the library while the reading was going forward. "'Well, but now, Casaubon, such deep studies, classics, mathematics, that kind of thing, are too taxing for a woman, too taxing, you know.' "'Dorothea is learning to read the characters simply,' said Mr. Casaubon, evading the question. "'She had the very considerate thought of saving my eyes.' Ah, well, without understanding, you know, that may not be so bad. But there is a lightness about the feminine mind, a touch-and-go, music, the fine arts, that kind of thing. They should study those up to a certain point, women should, but in a light way, you know. A woman should be able to sit down and play you and sing you a good old English tune. That is what I like, though I have heard most things, been at the opera in Vienna, Gluck, Mozart, everything of that sort. But I'm a conservative in music. It's not like ideas, you know. I stick to the good old tunes. Mr. Casaubon is not fond of the piano, and I am very glad he is not, said Dorothea, whose slight regard for domestic music and feminine fine art must be forgiven her, considering the small tinkling and smearing in which they chiefly consisted at that dark period. She smiled and looked up at her betrothed with grateful eyes. If he had always been asking her to play the last rose of summer, she would have required much resignation. He says there is only an old harpsichord at Lowick, and it is covered with books. Ah, there you are behind Celia, my dear. Celia now plays very prettily, and is always ready to play. However, since Casaubon does not like it, you are all right. But it's a pity you should not have little recreations of that sort, Casaubon. The bow always strung, that kind of thing, you know, will not do. I never could look on it in the light of recreation to have my ears teased with measured noises, said Mr. Casaubon. A tune much iterated has the ridiculous effect of making the words in my mind perform a sort of minuet to keep time an effect hardly tolerable, I imagine, after boyhood. As to the grander forms of music, worthy to accompany solemn celebrations, and even to serve as an educating influence according to the ancient conception, I say nothing, 
for with these we are not immediately concerned. No, but music of that sort I should enjoy, said Dorothea. When we were coming home from Lausanne, my uncle took us to hear the great organ at Freiburg, and it made me sob. That kind of thing is not healthy, my dear, said Mr. Brooke. Casabon, she will be in your hands now. You must teach my niece to take things more quietly, eh, Dorothea? He ended with a smile, not wishing to hurt his niece, but really thinking that it was perhaps better for her to be early married to so sober a fellow as Casabon, since she would not hear of Chetham. It is wonderful, though, he said to himself as he shuffled out of the room. It is wonderful that she should have liked him. However, the match is good. I should have been travelling out of my brief to have hindered it. Let Mrs. Cadwallader say what she will. He is pretty certain to be a bishop, is Casabon. That was a very seasonable pamphlet on his on the Catholic question. A deanery, at least. They owe him a deanery. And here I must vindicate a claim to philosophical reflectiveness by remarking that Mr. Brooke on this occasion little thought of the radical speech which, at a later period, he was led to make on the incomes of the bishops. What elegant historian would neglect a striking opportunity for pointing out that his heroes did not foresee the history of the world, or even their own actions? For example, that Henry of Navarre, when a Protestant baby, little thought of being a Catholic monarch, or that Alfred the Great, when he measured his laborious nights with burning candles, had no idea of future gentlemen measuring their idle days with watches. Here is a mine of truth which, however vigorously it may be worked, is likely to outlast our coal. But of Mr. Brooke I make a further remark, perhaps less warranted by precedent, namely, that if he had foreknown his speech, it might not have made any great difference. To think with pleasure of his niece's husband having a large ecclesiastical income was one thing, to make a liberal speech was another thing, and it is a narrow mind which cannot look at a subject from various points of view. End of chapter 7《Chapter Eight of Middlemarch by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espayat. Oh, rescue her! I am her brother now, and you her father. Every gentle maid should have a guardian in each gentleman. It was wonderful to Sir James Chetham how well he continued to like going to the Grange after he had once encountered the difficulty of seeing Dorothea for the first time in the light of a woman who was engaged to another man. Of course the forked lightning seemed to pass through him when he first approached her, and he remained conscious throughout the interview of hiding uneasiness. But, good as he was, it must be owned that his uneasiness was less than it would have been if he had thought his rival a brilliant and desirable match. He had no sense of being eclipsed by Mr. Casaubon. He was only shocked that Dorothea was under a melancholy illusion, and his mortification lost some of its bitterness by being mingled with compassion. 
Nevertheless, while Sir James said to himself that he had completely resigned her, since, with the perversity of a Desdemona, she had not effected a proposed match that was clearly suitable and according to nature, he could not yet be quite passive under the idea of her engagement to Mr. Casaubon. On the day when he first saw them together in the light of his present knowledge, it seemed to him that he had not taken the affair seriously enough. Brooke was really culpable. He ought to have hindered it. Who could speak to him? Something might be done perhaps even now, at least to defer the marriage. On his way home he turned to the rectory and asked for Mr. Cadwallader. Happily the rector was at home, and his visitor was shown into the study, where all the fishing-tackle hung. But he himself was in a little room adjoining, at work with his turning apparatus, and he called to the baronet to join him there. The two were better friends than any other landholder and clergyman in the county, a significant fact which was in agreement with the amiable expression of their faces. Mr. Cadwallader was a large man, with full lips and a sweet smile, very plain and rough in his exterior, but with that solid, imperturbable ease and good humor which is infectious, and like great grassy hills in the sunshine, quiets even an irritated egoism, and makes it rather ashamed of itself. "'Well, how are you?' he said, showing a hand, not quite fit to be grasped. "'Sorry I missed you before. Is there anything particular? You look vexed.' Sir James' brow had a little crease in it, a little depression of the eyebrow, which he seemed purposely to exaggerate as he answered. "'It is only this conduct of Brooks. I really think somebody should speak to him.' "'What? Meaning to stand?' said Mr. Cadwallader going on with the arrangement of the reels which he had just been turning. I hardly think he means it. But where's the harm if he likes it? Any one who objects to Whiggery should be glad when the Whigs don't put up the strongest fellow. They won't overturn the Constitution with our friend Brookshead for a battering ram. Oh, I don't mean that, said Sir James, who, after putting down his hat and throwing himself into a chair, had begun to nurse his leg and examine the sole of his boot with much bitterness. I mean this marriage. I mean his letting that blooming young girl marry Casaubon. What is the matter with Casaubon? I see no harm in him, if the girl likes him. She is too young to know what she likes. Her guardian ought to interfere. He ought not to allow the thing to be done in this headlong manner. I wonder a man like you, Cadwallader, a man with daughters, can look at the affair with indifference, and with such a heart as yours. Do think seriously about it. I am not joking. I am as serious as possible, said the rector, with a provoking little inward laugh. You are as bad as Eleanor. She has been wanting me to go and lecture Brooke, and I have reminded her that her friends had a very poor opinion of the match she made when she married me. "'But look at Casaubon,' said Sir James indignantly. "'He must be fifty, and I don't believe he could ever have been much more than the shadow of a man. Look at his legs.' "'Confound you, handsome young fellows! You think of having it all your own way in the world. 
you don't understand women they don't admire you half so much as you admire yourselves eleanor used to tell her sisters that she married me for my ugliness it was so various and amusing that it had quite conquered her prudence you it was easy enough for a woman to love you but this is no question of beauty i don't like casaubon this was sir james strongest way of implying that he thought ill of a man's character why what do you know against him said the rector laying down his reels and putting his thumbs into his armholes with an air of attention sir james paused he did not usually find it easy to give his reasons it seemed to him strange that people should not know them without being told since he only felt what was reasonable at last he said now cadwallader has he got any heart well yes i don't mean of the melting sort but a sound colonel that you may be sure of he is very good to his poor relations pensions several of the women and is educating a young fellow at a good deal of expense casaubon acts up to his sense of justice his mother's sister made a bad match a pole i think lost herself at any rate was disowned by her family if it had not been for that casaubon would not have had so much money by half i believe he went himself to find out his cousins and see what he could do for them every man would not ring so well as that if he tried his metal you would chetham but not every man i don't know said sir james coloring i am not so sure of myself he paused a moment and then added that was a right thing for casaubon to do but a man may wish to do what is right and yet be a sort of parchment code a woman may not be happy with him and i think when a girl is so young as miss brooke is her friends ought to interfere a little to hinder her from doing anything foolish you laugh because you fancy i have some feeling on my own account but upon my honor it is not that i should feel just the same if i were miss brooke's brother or uncle well but what should you do i should say that the marriage must not be decided on until she was of age and depend upon it in that case it would never come off i wish you saw it as i do i wish you would talk to brooke about it sir james rose as he was finishing his sentence for he saw mrs cadwallader entering from the study she held by the hand her youngest girl about five years old who immediately ran to papa and was made comfortable on his knee i hear what you are talking about said the wife but you will make no impression on humphrey as long as the fish rise to his bait everybody is what he ought to be bless you casaubon has got a trout stream and does not care about fishing in it himself could there be a better fellow well there is something in that said the rector with his quiet inward laugh it is a very good quality in a man to have a trout stream but seriously said sir james whose vexation had not yet spent itself don't you think the rector might do some good by speaking oh i told you beforehand what he would say answered mrs cadwallader lifting up her eyebrows i have done what i could i wash my hands of the marriage in the first place said the rector looking rather grave 
it would be nonsensical to expect that I could convince Brooke and make him act accordingly. Brooke is a very good fellow, but pulpy. He will run into any mold, but he won't keep shape. He might keep shape long enough to defer the marriage, said Sir James. But, my dear Chetham, why should I use my influence to Casabon's disadvantage, unless I were much surer than I am that I should be acting for the advantage of Miss Brooke? I know no harm of Casabon. I don't care about his Zisuthrus and Fee-Fo-Fum and the rest, but then he doesn't care about my fishing-tackle. As to the line he took on the Catholic question, that was unexpected, but he has always been civil to me, and I don't see why I should spoil his sport. For anything I can tell, Miss Brooke may be happier with him than she would be with any other man. Humphrey, I have no patience with you. You know you would rather dine under the hedge than with Casabon alone. You have nothing to say to each other. What does that have to do with Miss Brooke's marrying him? She does not do it for my amusement. He has got no good red blood in his body, said Sir James. No, somebody put a drop under a magnifying glass, and it was all semicolons and parentheses, said Mrs. Cadwallader. Why does he not bring out his book instead of marrying, said Sir James, with a disgust which he held warranted by the sound feeling of an English layman. Oh, he dreams of footnotes, and they run away with all his brains. They say when he was a little boy he made an abstract of Hop o' My Thumb, and he has been making abstracts ever since. Ugh! And that is the man Humphrey goes on saying that a woman may be happy with. Well, he is what Miss Brooke likes, said the rector. I don't profess to understand every young lady's taste. But if she were your own daughter, said Sir James, that would be a different affair. She is not my daughter, and I don't feel called upon to interfere. Casabon is as good as most of us. He is a scholarly clergyman and creditable to the cloth. Some radical fellow speechifying at Middlemarch said Casabon was the learned straw-chopping incumbent, and Frecky was the brick-and-mortar incumbent, and I was the angling incumbent. And upon my word, I don't see that one is worse or better than the other. The rector ended with his silent laugh. He always saw the joke of any satire against himself. His conscience was large and easy, like the rest of him. It did only what it could do without any trouble. Clearly there would be no interference with Miss Brooke's marriage through Mr. Cadwallader, and Sir James felt with some sadness that she was to have perfect liberty of misjudgment. It was a sign of his good disposition that he did not slacken at all in his intention of carrying out Dorothea's design of the cottages. Doubtless this persistence was the best course for his own dignity, but pride only helps us to be generous. It never makes us so, any more than vanity makes us witty. She was now enough aware of Sir James's position with regard to her to appreciate the rectitude of his perseverance in a landlord's duty, to which he had at first been urged by a lover's complaisance, and her pleasure in it was great enough to count for something even in her present happiness. Perhaps she gave to Sir James Chetham's cottages 
all the interest she could spare from Mr. Casaubon, or rather from the symphony of hopeful dreams, admiring trust, and passionate self-devotion which that learned gentleman had set playing in her soul. Hence it happened that in the good baronet's succeeding visits, while he was beginning to pay small attentions to Celia, he found himself talking with more and more pleasure to Dorothea. She was perfectly unconstrained and without irritation towards him now, and he was gradually discovering the delight there is in frank kindness and companionship between a man and woman who have no passion to hide or confess. End of chapter 8